This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, family. Hello. Yes, we, you know, we have uh, Google is your friend, first of all. There is not <laughs> a single thing that you cannot discover and find out. And I tell this to my students from editing audio and video to figuring out how to turn your camera from this way to that Teach. way. Teach. You said it was going to be easy. And I, you were as good as I, your I, know, I know it's easy because we've been doing this, but good morning. Hey, good afternoon. Good evening. Wherever you are in the world, Nubians especially love you. Good afternoon. Dr. Carr. Hello. Hey, Professor Hunter. Hello. This is our second remote broadcast, second of many. Well, first of all, I've been enjoying your videos um, on the soon-to-be-departed Twitters uh, <laughs> where you've been sharing. Do you, do you think it's going somewhere? Pro everything's going somewhere. Every, you know what? That is the answer. Yeah. No, that is that is the answer. That is the answer. The brother, I was with, in, in the elevator with an educator last night. We were talking, and I said, so what happens when Twitter is gone? What do we do before Twitter? And the brother said, we just be. Said, you know what? That's the answer. This damn hotel, like he's going on and off. That's but right. yeah, that's, that's right. good. We yeah. talk about it in a minute. But go yeah. Ahead, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. No. So I, you know, you're in Philly. You're in Philly. 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 Love it. Yes. Because we need home. black teachers. We need black teachers in our. In we the need black teachers. So Shout you, out. you had us uh, in the museum. Like, there's a. Is this on the street? The um, cattle. That is a, that is a, yes, a couple of places. And we'll, you know, this is just, we're just beginning to inch out. I got my phone upgraded so I can get a better picture. So I was just coming from, and now I can tell because it don't matter because it's over, but I got here four day in the morning, Friday, the conference started. We'll talk about that in a minute. And uh, Friday morning, and I, I, I helped open the conference Friday morning with a libation. And then we had a panel of four young brothers who are teachers. We'll talk about them too in a minute. So I don't like, paying people to ride. And I lived in Philly almost 20 years. So when I got off a 30th Street station named for William Gray, Congressman Gray, the hotel I'm at, which we're also going to talk about in a minute, what it used to be before it was a hotel, is on the other side of City Hall. So 30th Street is a few blocks, more than a few blocks from City Hall. So I just walked because I wanted to go see Octavius Cattle. I'm not scared to walk the streets of Philly at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's just how well, <laughs> so, I mean, and I, You're also you're also not a vulnerable looking dude. Uh, well, I had, no, I had the, uh, my hoodie on. So basically I'm, you know, part of the local color at that point. Right. So, so, but I walked and, and right there on the uh, south side of the Philadelphia City Hall is a beautiful statue. And we talked about this uh, a couple of years ago uh, of Octavius Caddo, who of course was the principal of the Institute for Colored Youth, which became Cheney University. Uh, shout out to Cheney University and one of its graduates who I got to spend some time yesterday swapping teacher notes with, Joyce Abbott, the sister who, uh, of course, Quinta Brunson named Abbott. I'm just a thoroughgoing Philly teacher, principal, as as beautiful a spirit as you can imagine. Have, have you talked to her? Yeah, I, I met you. Have now, you, you know, every time we meet, <laughs> I'm writing down a name and then I'm reaching out. And, no, the um, reason I asked because I'm still catching up. Uh, you know, I'm listening to the show live now, and I catch up on Sirius. I didn't know you may have talked to her. So I mean, she and uh, she and Vincent Hughes actually helped open the beginning plenary of the conference on Thursday night when I was still in D.C. and they they had started. Oh, but of course, State Senator Vincent Hughes, who is exactly. married to married to Cheryl Lee Ralph, exactly. Which is why I wondered if you hadn't already talked to her because I know y'all all tight. That's what I'm saying. I didn't know where did you talk. So anyway, so. Uh, 
Yeah, but but of course, Cheney, where she went to school, got her master's, and she spoke out there. We were talking about that. So I read the remarks you gave to Cheney in the black newspaper, the local black newspaper, the the, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm sorry, the Philadelphia Tribune. And so we were sitting there talking. But I brought all that up to say that the school, one of the schools she graduated from, used to be known as the Institute of Colored Youth. It was founded in 1837 here in, in, in Philly. And of course, that's why Cheney says it's the oldest HBCU, because technically it began life in 1837. Lincoln, about almost 20 years later. And wow. so the two oldest HBCUs in the country are in Pennsylvania, Cheney and Lincoln. Anyway, the, the principal of, uh, of the Institute of Colored Youth was Octavius Caddo, who was murdered in 1871 after he had left school, closed school to go vote. And these white boys caught him in South Philly and murdered him. And so many, many years, he's a legend here. His funeral at the time was the largest in the history of the city. And Cato, who was a, he was a baseball player, he was a scholar, he uh, was a civil rights leader, he and his wife, just very important figures. Anyway, there's a beautiful statue of Cato on the south side of Philadelphia City Hall. And before I went to the hotel, I know I wanted to stop by and pay respects. So I just walked from the train station, came down, I snapped that quick picture, and then came on down to where I am now. Uh, as you sit, and uh, I just was thinking about 1837 being Black. And I think we should spend time, like, mm. just like, because we can tap into that energy, right? Oh, 1837, no most of y'all's cousins and friends are in bondage. So for you to be able to go to school, meaning you could read, which was also illegal, punishable by death, right? Yeah. To have yeah. the freedom to go to school in 1837. But to be an educator in 1837 means you had to have knowledge before 1837, at least 10, 20 years of it, right? So right. what did that look like in 1817 and 1827? You know, I'm just thinking about how remarkable this cattle this Dr. Cat, we're gonna call him Professor Cato. No, he's definitely Professor Cato. No yeah, question. To to first of all have the knowledge and then the audacity to vote, because I know he must have known his life would be in danger. Not like you on the streets of Philly at two o'clock in the morning, because oh, my life is probably in danger too. Philly got all kind of crime waves, but our life's in danger being alive. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. But you know, somebody has to around and find out. But that that F being said, and find out. That's <laughs> said, you know, to go vote anyway, to go do it anyway, when you know there's no real hope, sustainable hope, you still got people in bondage and you went and voted, you know, or just coming out of bondage. We're in reconstruction, you went and voted, and folk are lynching folk and murdering people with impunity because there's really no law. To protect us and you went and voted anyway i just yeah i just uh, some are remarkable some remarkable people and you know i wanted to start today because people have been sending me these clips because john stewart and i actually talked about john stewart he's been making some sort of tour uh he was on jimmy kimmel the other night oh. talking about you know and, and he said some profound stuff including i'm jewish and i get called the anti-semite because i think what's happening to the palestinians is wrong I was like, okay, Jimmy, because you know I can't say that, but you can say it. And now that's a good that's a good position yeah. for him to play. Yeah, that's a good well, position for him to play. So, so why aren't more people playing it? Well, I mean, whiteness is a hell of a drug. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of hard. I mean, you, we know why. We know why. I mean, it's uh, it's difficult. So, so why is it a good position for him to play? What's what you know? Because play? he can. Because he oh, can. Yeah. I mean, you know, as uh, as Kwame Ture said, as Malcolm X told the white girl. Uh, I forget what was Harvard, uh, one of the council places he had spoken. And she said, what can I do? I'm, I'm he said, nothing. And he thought about it and said, uh, later. 
And like Kwame Ture wrote, what y'all can do is go to your cousins, go to your family, go to your friends. It's not my job to save uh, you or to plead for my life. But let's watch, let's watch what Stuart is saying, because right. so this, this is a little bit different than him taking on a community he was born and raised in on a political question that, quite frankly, is uh, much more common than people think. People think, well, Israel, you know, everybody thinks the same. No, Zionists and settler colonialism in Israel is the same as settler colonialism in the United States. It isn't about being Jewish. It's about taking people's property. And there are a lot of Jews in Israel and in the world who are anti-Zionists. And that is a conversation and debate that they've had. In fact, I read something yesterday, maybe it was the Wall Street Journal, um, the, uh, back from the political dead prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, somebody was making a plea, might have been the New York Times, where they were saying, you know, you need to make common calls, the, the kind of uh, so-called liberals in Israel. You need to join with Netanyahu. Why? Because if you don't, he is going to ally more closely with the hardcore extreme settlers in the minority parties in Israel. And it's going to be worse for the Palestinians. These are the Hobson's choices, which is no choice at all. Between, but John Stewart is voicing something on which he is not alone. There is a significant plurality of people in the world who identify as Jewish, who are Jewish, who are anti-Zionist. So don't we don't confuse Zionism with being Jewish or being Israeli, which is of course also two separate things. Sorry. And so it's good that John Stewart can enter that conversation because that's not you or me. And, and it's and not it's black Jews. Right. And it's important that he enters it, right? Absolutely. So Absolutely. I, wanted, I wanted to play because there's a bunch of clips. He has a show uh, called The Problem with Jon Stewart, uh, where he tackles everything from the, you know, the, the burn fields in overseas that are killing our, our soldiers uh, to, to opioids. And, and he touches on this here because I think, you know, and this is, again, I, I've been really thinking about moving forward and how to shape content. And I don't want to ever center whiteness, whiteness. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to center it because Found I think it all know, out. Put that all in there. whiteness. I don't want to, because I, I feel like that's been our problem. You know, yes. they do something and we react and then we're spending all our energy trying to, we're, we're human. We're, our lives matter. Look, look at, you know, respect me, you know, oh. love me, you know, and I'm like, that's too much. No, no, we, we got work to do. Let, let their cousins, you know, let's bring Jane Elliott, Tim Wise, all the people out there that do that. Y'all keep do more of y'all, more of y'all. And let's turn down, as you say, turn down the volume on, you know, the other stuff because they're there to trigger so that we can react. And in the reaction, we don't have the energy to do the other stuff because it's a finite amount of energy. So I'm, I'm going to spend a little time with Jon Stewart because this is the blueprint, white people, melanemic people who I don't know. I want to, you know, I want to be more anti-racist. You know, and there's a couple of clips. The first one's like nine minutes. I'm not playing that one, but do watch it. I'll drop it in the Nubia chats. So y'all can watch please, it. Please. Um, so let me hit this. And ugh, like it's car was like, let's not start with this face. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's say hello first because people don't say, wait a minute, what happened? Is have, have we been colonized? No, no, no. This is safe from Elon Musk and his friends. <laughs> We're in Nubia. Yes, we are. The fortress called Nubia. That's right. <laughs> It doesn't seem to matter what black people tell us or how many times they say it. It lands on deaf ears because a large swath of white America believes that black Americans are solely responsible for their community struggle. And the bias is so pervasive, we don't even notice it. Crap. 
Who's responsible? Let me tell you straight out. Everyone who uses drugs. Mm. <laughs> and perchance, who would this everyone be? Crack has become the new franchise, a chemical McDonald's. You want to get high, you see the guys in the gangs, in the red and blue outfits. The front line in the war on crack. There are tens of thousands more crack babies on the way. Crack babies are going to overwhelm every social service delivery system. Before, we could afford to ignore the hopelessness represented by gangs, but now we're afraid it will affect our schools, our kids, our streets. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones, and it's murdering our children. What kind of fucking candy do you eat? <laughs> now, this is not to downplay at all the effects of the crack epidemic, but we are currently in the midst of an equally corrosive opioid epidemic, although that affects a slightly different everyone. And how is that portrayed? America's addiction to opioids is playing out right down the street. Every type of person you can imagine. Successful people, funny people, moms, dads, grandparents, injured athletes, cancer patients, war veterans. Chances are greater than ever, you know someone directly affected. Why are opioids so hard to quit? Well, that's fucking easy. It links opioid receptors and it's an enzyme that I'm not gonna get into it right now. But the point is, it's on purpose. And the people who made it that way only had to pay a fine. But that's drugs. I'm sure poverty doesn't have the same empathy gap. Inner city is a polite name for ghetto, as in black ghetto. <laughs> and that's the award-winning PBS journalist. <laughs> so uh, just out of curiosity, why is the black ghetto poor? Intelligent Americans know. It is the collapse of the traditional family that is wreaking havoc in the African-American community. 72% of black babies are born to single mothers. If they would start talking about the responsibilities of fatherhood. Dependency on welfare yeah. was breaking up black families. The breakdown of the black family and an extraordinarily dysfunctional, toxic inner city culture. Inner city, excuse me. The politically correct phrase is black ghetto. <laughs> Good day. Uh, by the way, how do we portray poverty in the outer city? Ruggedly beautiful and deeply poor Appalachia for decades has struggled. People here have struggled more and more as their factories have shuttered and their coal mines have closed. It's been a slow, painful drip of job losses for decades. It used to be with a high school degree, you could get a job that actually could provide for your family. And the disappearance of those may lead people to feel a lot more stressed. So that low self-worth, along with that hopelessness feeling, we start seeing tremendous depression. So how do you relieve depression? You can relieve it with drug use, alcohol use. White people are poor and do drugs because something has been done to them. Black people are poor and do drugs because they won't just get up and do something. Everything that happens is viewed through that filter. What started as peaceful protest 
devolving into something beyond that. An explosion of violence today. This is not what we want people to see of the city of Philadelphia. Well, makes perfect sense. How would you like people to see the city of Philadelphia? The Eagles' victory touched off a wild celebration in Philadelphia. The celebration quickly got rowdy. Fans pulled down traffic lights. The awning in front of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel collapsed. Started fires and tipped over cars. Now, it looks like everybody had a good time there last night. And thus, the problem with white people. I'm just going to stop for a second and, and pose so you can get your memes out. Okay, there we go. Get a good picture for your clickbaits. For however sincerely we want to reckon and listen, the truth is America has always prioritized white comfort over black survival. Black people have had to fight so hard for equality that they've been irreparably set back in the pursuit of equity. And any real attempt to uh, repair a ton of that damage, reparations, <laughs> sets off white people's they're coming for our shit alarm, which we would know ourselves had we actually been listening. My feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it. Understood. Yep. Take me out of it. Take me out of it. I want I wanted to end that Did clip. Did she mean that? Did she mean that? She meant that. Did I'm she at Princeton. Yes. Take us I out. Mean, she meant it at Princeton. I mean, you know, Cheney is hiring. Take me out of it with all due respect to the ancestor who I have the utmost respect for. This is oh. a lot more complicated than that. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. You should right. say it with your feet. Yes. Ooh, 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 ooh. So a couple of things. First of all, the <laughs> I mean, I'm just that's me. No, no, no. I mean, and this is important because we, you know, we we, we signify a lot, you know, because things feel good. Don't we? Ooh, ooh, that's ooh, that's especially that when they're especially when they're Nobels and MacArthur's. Uh, oh, you're saying something. I'm just saying. Okay. Well, say what say say what you got to say, Doctor. No, Carson. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, it's 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 all fun and games until you got to put some skin in the game, right? I mean, skin is in the game. I'm not mad. I think John Stewart should do what he's doing. By the way, the irony of that picture of those white boys tearing down the Ritz Carlton awning. I passed that Ritz Carlton awning coming down to see Octavius Caddo. Octavius Caddo in that statue on the south side of City Hall looks down the boulevard. By the way, on the left hand of that boulevard, about two blocks down, is Signal Sound Studios, which we were talking about. That's the sound of Philadelphia right there, that boulevard. But the first thing that Octavius Cato uh, statue sees is the awning of the Ritz-Carlton. That's where the white boys were on top of that car. That is about, it's about maybe 50 feet from <laughs> the Octavius Cato. So the, grand, the great, 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 great grandchildren of the marauding white boys that killed uh, Octavius Cato stomped and tore down that awning and they were just having a good time as they were the day they killed Octavius Cato, who was by the way, was by the way armed that day because he knew he was going to run into those marauders. Yeah.
That's what they do. Oh, that's also the boulevard where they have the mummers parade. That's where they dress up in blackface and sing Odem Golden Slippers, a song that was composed in part by a black uh, man, James A. Bland. Uh, oh, them golden slippers. Oh, them golden slippers. They got banjos. They were so criticized for wearing blackface, so they kind of lightened it up, put different colors on it. But it's a minstrel parade, the mummers parade. That's the same boulevard. It's a beautiful thing, this city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to center this because, you know, what John Stewart, I think, did masterfully was show the role of media. You know, I mean, we go, oh, to, no question. There are, you know, in the drumbeat of, and, and we parrot the same, you know, Bill Cosby, you know, Black Fathers, Black Fathers, Historic. Bill Cosby, who grew up in the Richard Allen Projects, which is about two miles north of Philadelphia City Hall. That's right. That's where Fat Albert and Cosby kids is. It's interesting how so much of what we talk about today is a Philadelphia yeah, story. Right That's there. Right. That's why I wanted to bring it in, because when I saw no Philly, I was like, I know, I know you're there. But also, you know, it's yeah. like this this trope. Even my father, you know, believed, you know, if just fathers would be home and just take care of your children and do what, you know, it's like. No, that's not the problem. And we're seeing it now, you know, and when he juxtaposed to, you know, the black ghettos versus Appalachia where something happened to them and those poor things and, you know, it's it's the drumbeat and media is responsible. So we have to be more vigilant in consuming media and also holding media accountable because it's just, it's just lazy. It's just Absolutely. lazy on some, it's not as evil because I don't even think the people who are parroting this know what they're doing. Somebody is writing a script for them in the teleprompter but we have to be more vigilant and turning it out and, and holding them accountable. So that's, uh, I'm going to drop well, I mean, Let's say in this conversation, this is, I think this is a perfect way to frame it. Um, it's very interesting how white people can't see themselves as the center of every conversation, including the one we just saw from John Stewart. In other words, you know, mm. yeah, your responsibility is to talk to white people. And I'm glad you played that Toni Morrison clip where she says, you know, y'all got to deal with yourselves. Uh, she told Charlie Rose in a very famous clip we've seen many times. But let's be clear, uh, Brother Stewart, you should, you should be talking to white people, but don't mistake what African people have been saying as some plea to you. Let's be very clear about that. It's not about you, bro. It's really not about you. Even the crimes that you have committed the idea that somehow we exist to make you better is still implicit in that. So you're excoriating yourself and doing quite well while doing it, in fact, like Tim Wise, uh, like Jane Elliott, Jane Elliott. Y'all seem to do quite well in, in, in when you uh, promote even anti-racism. You go to the front of the line. So, uh, you know, which, you know, it's interesting. I'm saying, so why don't you pay, uh, pay Karen Hunter, who has been saying that since, I don't know, birth, or Greg Carmen. And in fact, in fact, no, 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 that's not the right question. Uh, when you, I think, was he deliberately stubborn, stumbling over the yeah, uh, reparations? Reparation? Yeah, because in the first clip, he 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 leads off talking about reparations. And okay, because I saw the, I saw the other clip where he was talking about George Floyd and the social media yeah. and the racial yeah. reckoning and all that. And uh, which, by the way, parenthetically, I think is important for us to pause and think about. And I know you've been consuming a whole lot much more than I have on this Twitter thing since everybody is talking about it. And I just want to ask you again, do you think Twitter will cease to exist as a platform any, in the near future? I think it's going to stay around. Um, but if it doesn't, I'm not like I'm honestly putting any energy. If it's there tomorrow, I'll, you know, right. I'll be there. If it's not, uh, I won't, you know. Well, I, yeah. 
That's we right. Got, you know, I got, a, I got an actual home. So, you know, Twitter's, Come Twitter's, on now. Twitter's where I go, you know, you know, I, I sneak off to, you know, hang out it's, and cuss, you know, in them streets. Right. You know, I may, I may uh, drink right. liquor and uh, act wild on Twitter, but I, I have a home where I take off my shoes and I, you know, and I, I'm, you know, getting and, and, and nourished and, and feeding and nourishing. Yeah. That's, yes. So. And there, and therein lies the answer. This is where John Stewart can't help and shouldn't even try to help. You see, you have a home. We had to build a home. So when you go into the platform known as Twitter and say, I'm the architect of, and then lay out narrative, lay out Nubia, that's not as an advertisement for people to come here and talk about what they're talking about there here. It's a reminder that we have a home. We have a home, you see. And that is the fundamental thing that whiteness never grapples with. In all the clips I saw from John Stewart that you shared, including that one, there's no mention of the fact that we do not exist to make white people better. In fact, the assumption is that we do. So that everything is about race and racism. Well, that's that's not only patently absurd, that's not the way, that's why we had to, I was talking to uh, Dr. Watlington, Tony Watlington, who's the new superintendent here in Philadelphia, new superintendent of public schools. And he's a historian by training, by the way, came out of North Carolina. So, uh, you know, talking about that curriculum that we developed with the Philadelphia Freedom School students, a lot of whom now are adults, some of whom are now running the uh, the Center for Black Educator Development. That's uh, my man, Sharif el uh the brother who's responsible now for convening this group. There was over 700 people here, mostly black men. So if you've never seen a room in your life with five, six, 700 black men who are teachers, that's where we were. But it wasn't just black men. It was and black men and black young men and black children, a few black children. There were black women there as well, a number of black women um, who were there as well. But, you know, standing there talking to Superintendent Darlington before we opened up, helped Sharif open up uh, yesterday morning, you know, we were talking about that Philadelphia curriculum that we developed uh, back in the early aughts, 2005, six, seven, and then put into place. And we just passed, by the way, November the 17th, 1967, it's when the school children of Philadelphia, the black school children, the teenagers and younger, uh, marched on the public the Board of Public Education on the Parkway, now condominium, thanks to an incredibly inept, evil genius type, thinking he was brilliant, but in fact, agent of gentrification, educational as well as economic and geographical. Paul Vallis, uh, nice enough guy. I liked Paul Vallis. You know, we had, I, I worked with, with the, for the school district at the time, Vallis was superintendent, at least for part of the time. But again, everybody knows better for the Negro, but the Negro, and of course, with the collusion of other people, including some black elected officials, they turned the school, uh, the board, the school board, the school district, the building built for public education into, in fact, a, a, an apartment complex, apartment building. But at any rate, 1967, it was still the school district and the students marched out of their schools, the various high schools of the city of Philadelphia, uh, led in part by a young brother at a Germantown high school, became a state legislator in Pennsylvania, the legendary David Richardson, David P. Richardson. This was during the Black, uh, the Black Power Movement, the Black Studies Movement, the Black Arts Movement, the Centering in Africana. And uh, they were beaten mercilessly by police under the uh, command of Frank Rizzo, a real piece of work, now long since dead. Uh, whose statue even was taken down during that summer of racial reckoning that John Stewart talks about in another clip from his show. Uh, 
And just sitting there with uh, Dr. Tarlington uh, having this conversation, uh, it's very interesting. I'm sorry, I say Tarlington, I say Dr. Waltington, Tony Waltington. We were standing there talking, you know, he's a historian, I'm in Africana studies, and we both have a real deep respect for the momentum of memory, as did everybody there yesterday. But in thinking about it in that curriculum framework, as I reminded folk yesterday, got a chance to spend some time with my friend and brother um, Israel, Ishmael Jimenez. Ishmael is the director of social studies for the School District of Philadelphia and has inherited the responsibility of continuing to promote that Africana studies course. Although the curriculum framework rewrote uh, is not the one that is being developed part because the, the administrators have told them, well, since, you know, it had my name is lead author Dana King, Mario Beatty, Malithia Watkins, so many others, John King, who wrote um, Doug Malik Watts, who wrote uh, Dr. Toussaint, those who wrote the lessons, they said, well, you know, it's a question of ownership. And as I reminded Ishmael now, and I'm saying this publicly, um, one of the reasons why you want to make sure that your intellectual property has shared copyright is so that you can preserve it in case there are attempts to abuse or misuse it. Now, I've never been one for profit. I, in fact, we started on this journey that we're in now because my basic grounding philosophy is that the system of education that we have in this country is too grounded and too incestuous in an incestuous relationship with entrepreneurship and profit. And the best way for us to engage in education, of course, is to, to use the parlance of capitalism, give it away. So we have to do that. I mean, we we attract enough resources to enable us to do the work. At least that's my philosophy. And I realize I'm not I don't, everybody didn't think like me, but it's a lot more effective for me to do the work and to find ways to sustain the work, certainly, but to do the work first. So Ishmael and I were talking yesterday, and, and I say this publicly, that you know, not only should y'all use this, that curriculum that we developed, that curriculum was based on a, a search through of the dozens of forms of curriculum that were written before the one that we put together in 2006 and seven. And so, you know, it, it, it benefits from the momentum of memory. And what happens when you find yourself in institutions that will have you believe that you have to start from scratch when they never start from scratch. And as I used to tell the students at Howard every uh, morning when I would come into class after having gotten on the 4.52 a.m. train from 30th Street Station and gotten off the train in Union Station in Philadelphia in Washington, D.C. at 7 a.m. and then take the metro up to campus and stay all day and then get back on the train at 10 p.m. and get back to my place in West Philly somewhere between usually about 1 a.m., maybe quarter to 1 a.m., every morning I get up in the city where they made up America. And I take the train to the city that they made up for America. But they're both made up. But I live in the city where they made it up. This is where the criminal enterprise intellectual architecture was put together, even as the financial dimension was chiefly New York. And the brain trust of how to keep us in place to build it was south, a little bit farther south, places like Charleston, places like that. But at any rate, the, the whole process of using the momentum of memory to keep your structure in place relies on you having this grounding 
myth, this myth-making. And of course, Philadelphia is the place where they really put in place the myth-making that persists to this day. Something we're going to take a jackhammer to for a few minutes this morning, just because it's a fun thing to do. And, it, and it's necessary to remind us of that. And as, as Ishmael and I were standing there yesterday talking, and, you know, as I, and I mentioned the curriculum again to uh, Dr. Um, Waltington, when you are dealing with education, you must bring that same momentum of memory bear to bear for yourself. Because if you don't, you will end up being a kind of supporting actor in somebody else's narrative. And what we saw there with John Stewart is a is a powerful reminder that even when you are doing good, you somehow see yourself as a star in your own show. Well, that's not building a world. That's not building a quote unquote multiracial democracy like what we're talking about here in the United States. What that's doing is enhancing whiteness to maintain the hierarchy. Now, you don't like the world as it is because it's inequitable, it's unequal, but even that language bespeaks a relationship between human beings that won't be fundamentally renegotiated. It will just be altered in some ways to alleviate the suffering of, of, of people, but at the same time, keep that structure in place. Um, so a couple of things as, 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 we, as we, we, we kind of enter the conversation. Um, when you think of structures, you're thinking of things that we often, we are rather thinking of things that we often take for granted. The structures seem to be invisible, but they shape everything we do in our lives. So yesterday morning, and again, this is the uh, convening of something called the Black Men Educators Convening, uh, rather than conference. In other words, we're bringing folks together to have conversation. It's really quite something because we're talking about education as a fundamentally subversive act. So this conference uh, that opened Thursday night uh, with the board chair of the Center for Black Educator Development, Winston Cox, and uh, Robert Simmons, um, who uh, opened as well, and had that discussion, opening conversation uh, with State Senator Hughes, as you said, uh, Professor Hunter, and the uh, acting Pennsylvania State Secretary of Education, and, um, and uh, Sister Joyce Abbott. You know, that conversation then emptied into Friday morning, and the first thing Friday morning, uh, Dr. Washington gave some remarks and, and they asked me to open with libation. And in my libation, I kind of did what we do in this space. And I reminded them that this libation, in fact, is anchored in that curriculum framework. So after asking folk for permission to continue, you know, I talked a little bit about that momentum of memory and how in our Africana studies framework, we have to remember and that is how we distinguish between the social structures, the political, economic uh, structures, the cultural structures we find ourselves in as human beings in any time and, and moment, and who we are to each other while operating in those structures. So the structure John Stewart is talking about is the social structure. And in that moment that he played the clip from Toni Morrison talking to Charlie Rose, she is talking as an African person in the social structure responding to the social structure and then saying that this structure must change and it is up to those of you who created the structure and operate the structure and benefit from the structure, whether it be Charlie Rose on PBS or John Stewart on Apple TV, to take a jackhammer to it. Now, we will help, but we're not helping because we believe in the social structure. In fact, quite the opposite. We're helping as an act of self-defense. And so when we hear John Stewart, and I wrote it down, that's why I was kept looking down. And of course, I got to get used to looking 
on this, what did I write? I was looking at the John Stewart notes and I think I moved them to make the point. What did I do with it? Oh, here we are. He said, white comfort versus black survival. Yeah. Yeah. Black survival is the origin of all of our resistance. We have to survive, but also black thriving. Black thriving. So this isn't about opportunity. It isn't about opportunity. In fact, in another eclipse uh, that you shared, I saw Viola Davis say, you know, the only, the only difference between black and white people is opportunity. I'm sorry, sis. With all due respect. Opportunity for what? Turn down. For what? <laughs> I mean, opportunity <laughs> for what? And then and it's the what that gets obscured. Um, you know, what are we trying to do? What is the we? And so yesterday morning, you know, I said, you know, we, one of the things we have to do is establish who is the we. That's why we had to create a, a governance category. Who are we to each other? What is the we in that that we're having? The, 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 the building I'm in right now, the conference is downstairs here. This is something called the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society building. It was the first major skyscraper built on the universal, uh, on the European model style in the United States. It is considered one of the great architectural designs in the United States. Uh, it still has the, 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 the PSFS sign on it. If you come through Philadelphia, if you're driving through or see the train, you see downtown Philadelphia, you look, you'll see a big red PSFS. That is the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society building. That hadn't been the Philadelphia Savings Fund in a number of years, over 30 stories tall, all the building. I mean, you got a big, still got the vault downstairs in the, in the lobby. It's a, it's a beautiful building. And of course, this huge conference is being held right downstairs in these massive rooms, this kind of thing. Well, it was started in December 1816. Uh, a cat named Raje, Raquet, rather, um, who was born in, in the 18th century, 1784, started this as a deposit bank for poor and working class people. If you grew up in Philadelphia in a certain age, up through like the 1970s, 80s, if you were a school child, they would have you open your bank account at the PSFS with pennies. Uh, and I don't know, Professor, I don't know if you uh, if you remember that. I, I certainly remember in school where they would, the teachers would come or somebody would come from a bank and, and it would give you a little passbook and you could put your little savings in. I don't know, because see, you've been a businesswoman since y'all ran the store with your father. So I don't know <laughs> if you did that. No, I mean, we had, uh, you know, candy sales that we had to go and, you know, knock on people's doors and oh, we did sell, that, yeah, sell candy. But I don't remember that. I mean, okay. There are Nubians here, and then later in YouTube, there's going to be an army of people who do remember it. Some of y'all and in I'm, the broken Nubia. Was it a northern thing, a southern thing? Was it you know, like which bank sponsored it? Well, clearly here in Philadelphia, it was a northern thing, and in Nashville, right. it was a southern thing. It was like banks would would they would bring representatives from the bank into your elementary school class or your junior high school class, usually elementary school. The whole idea was to start children on saving, so you, they would say, okay. You put your deposit in. We're going to open a bank account for you. So you might have 50 cents or a quarter or even pennies or a dollar or two. And then you get your savings book and you put your name in, how much money you deposit in. When you go to the bank, that's your book. That's your record. They call it a passbook. Yeah. No, my daddy did that for me. Like, so oh, okay. I remember going to the bank every Saturday morning with my father. Yeah. And we, you know, and he, yeah. We, I've and never I, heard this story. So you, you had your own account. Yeah, and I actually have the passbooks because um, when he passed, uh, I went through his stuff, his, his record keeping. So he kept every passbook, Howard Savings Bank, and you know my name on it. So I kept it. 
Um, so you I did have that, no question. I had it, but it didn't come through the school. Okay, well, see, that's very interesting. And that's, I think that's the avenue of study. And I'm thinking about uh, Julia E.K. Welker, uh, who wrote a two-volume history of Black economic progress and banking. Um, I'll have to go back and look. I'm quite sure it's been written about. Uh, of course, it, wow. In this city, citizens' savings, not to be confused with Citizens Bank, which is now colonized all of downtown. Between the train station and City Hall, I must have seen three different branches of Citizens Bank in the huge building. Citizens Bank, by the way, is the name on the ballpark where the Philadelphia Phillies play. And uh, took that ass with him from the Houston Astros, which I was only so happy to remind the folks of yesterday morning when I was on the panel with the Young Brothers. I was just kidding with them because Meek Mill, they were bringing up Meek Mill as an example of a rapper whose lyrics they used with the young people here in Philly to translate, to, to build a bridge toward the Sonia Sanchez's and the Miri Baracas. And I was like, yeah, Meek Mill, he did that uh, song, uh, Dreams and Nightmares, is it? Yeah, at the World Series, right? Yeah, that's why y'all got that beating from Dusty Baker in there right now. It's like, ooh, I said, hold on, I'm not set tripping. I'm a Baker fan. I don't give a damn about none of the teams. I ain't been to a Nats game since they got rid of Dusty Baker. But I'll go back now that they will play the world champion Houston Astros. And so we were laughing about that. But 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 I, but I'm saying all that to say that um, the the prospect of saving money, Citizens Bank, Citizens Savings Bank, not to be confused with Citizens Bank that now is colonizing and got their name on the baseball stadium. Citizens Savings Bank was founded by Richard Robert Wright Sr. Richard Wright, as I called his name in libation yesterday morning, Richard Robert Wright came out of Cuthbert, Georgia. His uh, mother, Harriet, walked he and his siblings out of the country into Atlanta, Georgia, where they started school during Reconstruction in a railroad car. And it was Richard Robert Wright who, as a little boy, when General, General Oliver Howard came to visit uh, during his tour as, as head of the Freedmen's Bureau, he's in Atlanta, and he asked these young black school children, learning their letters and numbers, what would you like me to tell your white friends in the North? Not to say he's a John Stewart figure, but again, about him. And Richard Wright put his hand up and said, tell them we're rising. Tell, tell them we're rising. He became known after that quick rejoinder, off script rejoinder, as the black boy of Atlanta. <laughs> The black boy of Atlanta, he grew up to found a little school still around today called Savannah State University and then moved to Philadelphia and started a bank. Uh, his son, Richard Robert Wright Jr., became a bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and Richard Robert Wright Jr.'s daughter, Richard Robert Wright Sr.'s granddaughter, Ruth Wright Hare, became uh, a principal teacher in Philadelphia, principal in, in Philadelphia, and then over the school board, the Board of Public Education in Philadelphia. And when she ascended to that rank, uh, she led the charge to make the motto of the school district of Philadelphia at the time that she was in that command of leadership. Uh, their motto, the motto when I joined, in fact, the school district as an employee, was tell them we are rising. That was his, his her, 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 her grandfather's statement. As, she told, as he told General Howard, why am I bringing that up in the context of what I'm talking about now? Richard Wright's bank, Citizen Savings Bank, uh, also had a program where children could put their money in the bank. Why? Because you're teaching, you know, had this, you're teaching thrift, you're teaching discipline, you're really teaching control of your life. This is institution building. So whether it be your father opening an account and you putting money you earned into it, whether it be them coming into the schools 
and saying, you know, here's your first passbook. You put your little money in from wherever you get it, allowance or, t or ruffling through pockets or doing whatever you're doing. You put this in the bank and then you continue to build. What you're teaching is the ability to self-determine and determine your own fate, your own life. And in this building I'm in right now, which used to be the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society building, where the passbooks that they gave to children were uh, actually um, almost like a, a plaid cover. They had a plaid paper cover on the passbooks they gave to the children that were red, blue, and white in honor of uh, Reverend Henry Duncan. Henry Duncan was the Scotsman who had started a bank in Scotland who was the inspiration for Ragay to start the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society building. So as people say, well, why? everybody might why am I telling all this uh, social structure history? Well, the first depositor in the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society Bank was an enslaved African, the man that worked in the house, in Ragay's house, a brother named Curtis Roberts. Curtis Roberts worked in the house. And I love the way they narrated in the social structure. They will say, an employee, <laughs> a manservant. Henry put his money in this bank long before this building was here and they were renting property. Henry, I'm sorry, not Henry, Curtis, Curtis Roberts put his money in this bank. And as I told him yesterday morning, I said, when I worked for the school district, when I was the technical title was, uh, they called me the first scholar on race and culture for the history of, in the history of the school district of Philadelphia. Basically, it made up a title for me because they didn't know what to do with me, which was a beautiful thing. I got to do with pretty much whatever I wanted. But my boss, Cassandra Jones, Dr. Cassandra Jones, uh, who was at, at one point the associate superintendent and then, and then the superintendent of schools in Baltimore as she left Philadelphia and is back here in Philly. She sent me because I told them yesterday, many, for a lot of black people, they hadn't been in here. Um, I told them when they were remodeling this building to turn it into the hotel, this would have been around 1999, 2000, Cassandra sent me to the library. She said, because we heard some rumors that the first person to put money in this behemoth, which at one time was the largest savings bank in the country it was a black man so let me go find out and sure enough i found curtis roberts so we had to lift his memory yesterday and put his he put five dollars in this bank in 1816. <laughs> you can imagine what is the interest on five us dollars from 1816. but i'm saying out to say that there's always a governance uh story now curtis roberts wasn't putting his money in this bank to help uh condi Rage. I'm not doing that for you. I'm doing that for me. Mm. You saying I'm doing that for me. And so, you know, John Stewart, with all due respect, when you show clips from Claude Anderson, it says, you know, America's problem is the burden of slavery. Facts. But then Viola Davis said, just between black people and white people is opportunity. Opportunity for what? Then you saw Sister Soldier taking me back the other way and say, you know, uh, it's not what white people say, it's what white people do then yeah, that's a little bit closer to a critique. And then you put on Chris Rock. <laughs> he says, Chris Rock's a brilliant comedian. No, Chris Rock practices the art of irony. He says, it's not a one of y'all will change uh, 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 places with me and I'm, you know, and I'm rich. <laughs> this is what Clyde Taylor calls ethiopicism. In other words, you raise the irony of the fact that there's nothing I can do that would make you see me as human. So what I do is continue to remind you of that 
And in your nervous laughter, which turns into full gut laughter because you realize that there's nothing I can do about it that will threaten you. Well, at that point, what I'm basically engaged in is just showing you the irony. Basically, what I'm saying is, look at me. I'm trapped. And you're like, <laughs> right, because it's like, oh, he's trapped. Is he going to get away? No, he can't get away. Oh, I love this guy. Great comedian. Why? Because you can't escape. You pointing out that you are trapped doesn't get you out. Now, I tell you what, might make people nervous. See when Dave Chappelle shows up and you say, wait, should I laugh? Should I not laugh? Wait, is this guy don't care what I do? Oh, this is a problem. Why? Because he don't care. You understand? And it's not polite. It could be dead wrong or right, but it's going to be guided by what he said. Now, I don't know whether Lauren Michael threw his shoe at the television or cussed somebody out because Dave Chappelle did not uh, uh, basically stage a fake monologue in rehearsal the day before or the, or the day before that he went on. You know, because at that point, now you got somebody who you can't tell what to do, but you keep asking him to come back. Why? This is a little word called R-E-S-P-E-C-T. As, as Aretha said, find out what it means to me. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Not what it means to you. Brother Stewart. I get it. I mean, it's very noble what you're doing. But did you ask me what I wanted? No, you didn't. Because you assume what I said to you is how I feel as we say on the inside. Now, you can't trust Chris Rock to tell you what he feel on the inside. I'm talking about when all the lights are gone and there's nobody around looking. Now, if you could get a tape recorder in there, you might get a little truth. But what you're getting that you're comfortable with is a critique of a whiteness that's still not going to be displaced by the criticism. Because for two reasons. Number one, you built it, you dismantled it. That's what Toni Morrison is saying. But really, no, that's number two. Number one is, so number two is, it's only going to be dismantled by you. But number one is, the way we help you dismantle it is to take back our power from it. This is a challenge, you see. We don't exist to plead for our humanity to you. So then uh, in, in, in another clip from that, you know, same conversation about race, John Stewart's heads that, that you shared, uh, Karen, you said, hey, look at this, I'm going to look at this. He mentions hip hop. And he said, you know, black people invented a whole genre just to explain it to us. That's why we made up hip hop. <laughs> I get it, brother. I'm saying brother in the broadest sense of the human, like my friend Cornel West does. But let's be clear. I would much rather think of brother in the sense of the Doobie Brothers. You don't know me, but I'm your brother. I was raised here in this living hell. You don't know me, but I'm your brother. I was raised here in this living hell. Yeah. <laughs> what does he say? Very soon the time will tell. Yeah. You don't know my kind in your world. That's the second part. You don't know my kind in your world. Very soon the time will tell. You don't know me. You don't even want to know me. And you, Michael McDonald say, telling me the things you're going to do for me. All right. Yeah, really? Mm -hmm. I ain't blind, but I don't like what I think I see. Taking it to the street. That's where you get scared. You can talk all that smack that you want. I'm sure for free on Apple TV. I'm sure they're not paying you. 
What? <laughs> so, you don't know me, but I'm your brother. I was raised here in this living here. I was raised in this social structure. Where Curtis Roberts money at? Because the record of Curtis Roberts peters out. Cassandra sent me to the archive to find Curtis Roberts, but I'm not satisfied finding him. I want to track him. Ain't track. Ain't been able to track him. What Curt? What, what Curtis five dollars? Got to be worth at least two of these floors are here right now. So you know. So, so Doctor Carr, what do, um, what do we do? I yep. sincerely, I sincerely believe that you know John Stewart thinks that he is on the right side of. Like, oh, this ain't a critique of John Stewart. No, I know, I know. But what I'm saying is that there, there are people that they, I mean, they're listening to people, you know, and there are people probably in his life that have told him things and he's filtered. Oh, sure. I see the, there's like a thousand writers, you know, and people, they're in these rooms and talking and I'm sure there are people who look like you and me in those rooms telling them, yes, that's great. So when do you get to know, unless you're watching in class with Carr, you know, and or if you're yeah. a new here, we don't have a million people. So the the disbursement of information, and even me, I have to sit back and like examine. Why do I think? Oh, well, Dr. Carr just checked me on that. No, no way. you check no. me. We we check each other. So That's how I'll do I embrace the check because it's like everything that we think we've been taught to think this. So to dismantle the thinking requires a different kind of understanding of things and an openness to checking yourself or being checked or saying. Oh, wait a minute. That that Tony Morrison piece that I play over and over again on my radio show needs to be examined a little more deeply and not as a criticism. But we, again, come with the things that we've been taught. And it sounds good. It feels good. And we'd love to signify. But what do you do if you're Jon Stewart and you're really trying to change? I think he really is trying to get people to think differently. He's not I Bill Maher. He's not I Bill Maher's horrible raggedy no. ass. I, li I like Bill Maher, though, because Bill Maher says what they saying when ain't nobody around. We run this shit. <laughs> so what are we going to do? We need to do. Y'all crazy. But in fact, what Bill Maher, I, I saw a glimpse of him last night after I got in. Uh, what He said something. Well, I didn't make no sense because he always saying something stupid. But, but I think Jon Stewart needs to do what he's doing. I mean, if Jon Stewart were in Nubia, if Jon Stewart was in narrative, pause. I'll say this about Twitter. I'll say this about Twitter. And people have been saying this. You probably have already discussed it, Rob. Social media generally. But, you know, when the young sister filmed George Floyd being murdered, when the young people in Ferguson took to the streets, you know, when Cori Bush was out there, now in the halls of Congress, when folks began to assemble, Twitter has been an extremely valuable conduit for immediate mm -hmm. convening. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't think it's going to go. That's one of the reasons I don't think it's going to I agree with you. And see, you know much, you, obviously you're a, a cold-blooded expert in all of these forms of media discourse. And I agree with you. And I'm glad to hear you say that in response to the question, what's going to happen? It's not going away. Musk has taken a jackhammer to a lot of it, but it is too deeply ingrained in the daily exchange, even as it is not nearly the most widely used or shared. I mean, you know, there's, you know, if you look at Alibaba, if you look what the Chinese have developed, and of course, even even Facebook is more widely, you know, no used, question, you know, no question. And the I, platform that we use, YouTube, which I think, in fact, I was talking to one uh, a guy last week who was saying people really, really 
don't maybe think too much about the influence of this uh, of YouTube. I mean, YouTube, you know, I mean, it's not any, we look at dollars and cents, we look at revenue. No, but just the idea that anywhere in the world, somebody clicks on something and watches this conversation. I, I actually went into the geography while you were on, and we have right now, there's 13 people in Haiti, there's 26 people in South Korea, Tanzania, Israel, we have 27 folk watching in Israel. Wow. Guyana, the Philippines, Mexico, Puerto Rico, Sweden. There's 71 folk in Sweden. Uh, Japan has 112 in Spain, 120. I'm like, you know, Netherlands, 304 people, 323 in France, Trinidad, Tobago, Australia, Jamaica, Germany has 500 folk right now. 817 people in South Africa, Zambia, Canada, UK. I'm like, yo, that's Stunning, right? So you think about reach. Yes, YouTube, a billion people is Google, you know, and and you know, and then I'm you know constantly talking with the team even about Nubia, which is why I'm not like, come on, everybody, because no. how a thing starts in its infancy is what so really Twitter took off with the Arab Spring. Twitter took off and, and was founded in this people being able to use a platform to tell you what's going on when your government's media <laughs> shuts That's it right. down and right. and elon musk is taking a jackhammer but a jackhammer is being taken to him every day people every are day. on him every day continue continue because it's unwieldy folk quitting oh you want to fire people all right you need everything here we're leaving that's right what you gonna that's do right. oh that's now right. you gotta bring people back because you you know like he is in a world world <laughs> spin right now and it's fun to watch uh, it really is. Yeah. And I, Michael Harriet, brother, you yeah. just a genius. Yo. Did he is he the one if he didn't, he weaponized it. This whole hashtag of the black Twitter who's gonna sing it to repass. And I saw you in it. Oh my god. And you know, he's also, you know, keying us into some key because he's a, a journalist, you know. No question. He, he's bringing forward like their their policy on diversity. He was like, and, 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 and let's not forget he is a governance structure educated journalists, yeah, homeschool, yeah. community education. So don't think Harvard and Princeton or Howard and Morehouse. No, no, no. This brother came out of the house, the literal house. But anyway, yeah. And, so a he, his, and a, one of the first first newbies to come in and, and give scholarships. Yeah. Like no this, question. Yeah, he's bought in. Uh, not bought in. He is birthed from. Invested you know, coming in. And, yeah, no question. No question. Yeah, no. So it's going to be interesting uh, watching how this all plays out. But, you know, I'm just, you know, sitting in community with you helps so much because it's like how do we move now what's the next play okay just, yeah just, sit just let it just let it just let it breathe no and and the fact that you read all that all of us in here in real time and that conversation and all those different pe people in different countries a couple of things and then we'll tie this really to again the conversation we've been having over the last couple of days and we'll finish up today uh when we get off here i'm gonna rush downstairs because uh yasha shabazz is, is speaking uh this morning Hello, hello for me. Oh, please. you know, you know, I am. You know, I think uh, obviously gonna give, give her the greetings. I know that's that. I know that's the homie for you. So, uh, yeah, so I mean, that is really the conversation. In fact, there was a beautiful, beautiful principles forum uh, right after I had a conversation yesterday morning after I finished libation. Um, I was really honored uh, that Baba Sharif and and the crew at um, at the center asked me to moderate a conversation with four young brothers who have been teaching around a year or less 
my man, Tamir Harper. And these guys are, are, are in our freedom school, our freedom school model. So we were together in the summertime. It's my first time seeing them physically because, you know, I was in D.C. They were in Philly and we were, it, we, this will be the last time we do it that way, hopefully. But uh, Amir Williams, uh, who was at Westchester uh, University getting his master's, he, Philadelphian, I mean, he is teaching now. Uh, Foley Coivy, who is at Howard. Uh, finishing his uh, finished his freshman year, uh, he's a teacher as well. Horace, brother Horace Ryan's, who's in Morehouse, just a brilliant brother. I mean, I told Horace, man, you had a gift. Some things you come here with, right? That capacity to kind of draw people in and hold their attention. And as you are learning, everybody learns together. Uh, I just, you know, love brother Horace. And then Bryce, Bryce Thompson, who is his homie uh, as well, was at the College of Worcester. These are four young brothers, and they had a conversation. Uh, around, um, oh, forget Tamir. I started with Tamir. Tamir Harper, who is a uh, graduate from American University. Yeah, they, they, they are humanities teachers, mostly English, social science. Uh, so, it, so humanities and social science teachers. And they were talking about the lessons they had learned and are learning and how to make the connections. That's why they were talking. One of them had mentioned Meek Mill, and that's when I kind of made that joke. But, you know, they were talking, I mean, the themes that came out, and these, these cats are like, 20, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. And black men who are teachers. And one of the things I asked them, I said, now, you know, who influenced you as a teacher? I said, not necessarily a classroom teacher, which was a beautiful thing to hear a couple of them talk about their fathers as teachers. Uh, that is often the illusion that there are no black men in the community or very few black men. Then they said that'd be your bloodline father either. A lot of that came out yesterday. I mean, I must have had 50 separate conversations yesterday and then bits and pieces of others with educators, women and men. Um, Mama Toya, shout out, you know, Nubian, you probably here this morning. You may be a dipped out of the conference to come in and be in because Mama Toya, when I tell you, Prof, that the Nubians are here, all of the people who listen to you on Sirius, all the people in the global majority, I mean, everywhere we go, we talk about, as you read off those countries, the whole idea that, you know, the world is here. The African world is here. Not just the African world, but the African world is here. So Mama Toya and two of her friends, sisters, they are Nubians. They call themselves the woke aunties. They've been taking pictures. The hashtag is BMEC2022. Uh, Black Male Educator Convening 2022. You can see, uh, you know, they just been tagging everything. And apparently she put the libation idea yesterday. I already dropped it in Nubia. You Mama Toya don't be playing. And she comes, she's coming on office hours several times, right? She's back in. She's teaching now. She's she's in this movement. But I bring it all up to say that after we finished that convening, it was really something to sit there with. Uh, there was a panel of principals and school leaders, brothers, um, <clears throat> called the leadership necessary, necessary for a sustained, highly effective black teacher program. Black teacher training program, how you can recruit people in. Because the other thing I asked the young brothers is not only who influenced you, but another of the questions I was able to ask them was, you know, would your friends follow you into teaching to a person? They were like, I don't know that they do it. And then they started talking about what teaching takes from you that is replenished by what you give to it. The long hours, the moments when you say, Man, I don't know if I can do this. I can keep this up. Now, mind you, it's a hell of a thing to hear a 20-year-old say after six months in the classroom. <laughs> Man, I come home and be like, I don't know if I can keep this up. 
So, you know, as they were talking, and it wasn't a sad thing. It was just like, you recognize. One thing to talk about teaching is quite nothing to do with the standard with Joyce Abbott, who just retired and now has a whole world to teach because one of the children she taught has found her way into a social structure uh, formation where she can use a lot of that valuable lesson and experience as a platform to now bring to the world through humor in a, in a show like Abbott Elementary. I said, it must be quite satisfying. She was like, yeah. I said, but imagine when you're teaching these children, she said, well, that's how, that's how we do. That's what we do. We don't know where these young people are going to end up, but you give them everything you have and you put the floor under them. Because she talked, and she talked about this um, at Cheney when she talked, and she's been talking about this more and more now because she's in demand everywhere, you know, coming out of her own pocket. And teachers do this. We know that. Teachers paying for students, you know, if you don't have something to eat or if your family is jammed up. And, and she was saying yesterday, you know, I didn't have it, but what else was I supposed to do? And to hear those young brothers say that, yeah, while my friends might not follow me, or maybe they would if they were more supports, this kind of thing. What, I said, you know, they said, what keeps me in it is, it was a simple word, the L-O-V-E, the love. It's a hell of a thing to hear a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, 19-year-old say, yes, yeah, the love, the love I feel. The fact that young children who other people say they don't want to learn, they don't want to learn, they get in trouble and they say, you know, I, <laughs> uh, I want to go to Mr. Williams' room and read. You want to what? Well, go on down in there since you want to come in the room and read. Why do you like reading in his room? Because reading is something that I enjoy, and I didn't know I enjoyed it. And he believed I could read, and he didn't act like I couldn't read. It seems simple, but that's the love that rechannels into the piece. Now, how does that how does that relate to what we're talking about? This broader sense of you know, what should those who uh, kind of have the advantages in this system, like a John Stewart, what should they be doing? Well, when you have a space because of your whiteness because of the success that your whiteness enables, a success that is unimpregnable. Y'all been looking at the papers this week, uh, Yale, then Harvard, then I think Berkeley, Stanford, uh, who else? There were a couple of Columbia, it was one of the school, have announced, the law schools have announced, the law school deans have announced that they will no longer participate in the US News and World Report's rankings. And the top, there's something called the T14, if y'all those of you applying to law school. The same, this the, 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 virtually the same 14 law schools in the United States of America that are the top law schools, they stay the same year after year after year after year after year. year. Now, once you get to 14, 15, 16, they be fighting to get into the top 14. So like Georgetown has traded time, at time, they've fallen in, they've fallen out, they've come in, they've come close. And then the second, that second tier is now saying, well, we can't, we don't, we can't afford, we, well, yeah, we know that those, those rankings ain't shit, but we we can't afford not to participate because we trying to get into top fourteen. And then you go down farther, and they saying, yeah, well, you know, we can't afford because we are U.S. News Report and World Report, by the way, has said that they are going to rank those schools whether they participate or not using public information because what they are doing, of course, is showing up their credibility. They got ad revenue. Uh, to generate and prestige to generate. But the reason I bring this up in the context of John Stewart, I mean, like John Stewart, and unlike Kanye West, Kyrie Irving, and somewhere between the John Stewart and the Kanye West, Kyrie Irving, but closer to Kanye, uh, Kanye West and Kyrie Irving than John Stewart is a Dave Chappelle. Unlike John Stewart, I mean, unlike the, the, the Blacks, just like in some ways, John Stewart, Yale and Harvard ain't going to be canceled because they don't participate. You see, 
those schools below the top 14 as ranked by us news and world report don't want to pull out because they trying to get in because they still use that for prestige to attract applicants this kind of thing yeah and harvard have also said you know and they're talking you don't you can make the lsat optional the test to get into law school yeah, why? Because you can't do anything to Yale and Harvard's brand. You can't do anything to their brand. So what do you do then when you have the indelible credibility of whiteness? Then what can you do to dismantle this system? Well, you're not going to dismantle Yale and Harvard. You're not going to dismantle Apple TV. You're not going to dismantle Disney. But what you can do while you're off seeking profits is hire Ryan Coogler and say, well, we make all the money in the world. We're going to give you free reign to help us make all the money in the world by telling a story that might make these people that you claim to represent or want to represent or think you represent in some form uh, a little more comfortable in their beingness in the world. As long as we make the money. Now, what Ryan Coogler and them got in their mind is, well, while I'm doing that, what you can't see, because you don't know me, but I'm your brother. I was raised here in this living hell. Um, you don't know my kind in your world. Very soon, the time will tell. As you're telling the story, what you're doing in your mind, coming out of a governance mentality if it, at its best, is trying to tell stories, trying to participate in conversations, as John Stewart puts non-whites into the conversation. Maybe a Larry Wilmore, who then puts on an Amber Ruff. And I'm not sure it's not my world, but the point is that maybe those people give a glimpse to people who are perceiving that information differently. So whether it be an MSNBC with Tiffany Cross, who, you know, and Joy Reid, who's gotten blacker and blacker over the years, you know, it's like, we don't really want you. We feel like we need you until we don't. You're never going to be in the hierarchy as such. We're always going to keep you at arm's length. When we do get rid of you, we're going to say it's your fault. But in that crack that you have, if you've got in your mind, you're going to try to talk to your people in a way that helps get them a little bit closer toward resistance and fortifying resistance. That's what the John Stewart's can do. That's what the Harvard and Yale's can do. Again, realizing, as Tony Morrison, who I have no doubt and know served that function at Princeton, whose papers, which are not at a black institution, but at Princeton, will hopefully serve that function for some researchers. You know, that is the type of, to borrow from a brother who was here yesterday, uh, who I've mentioned before only in terms of his work. I don't really know him. I don't know him at all. In fact, just met him yesterday, very, very, put it very quickly, Jarvis Gibbons. That's what I suppose Jarvis Gibbons means by fugitive pedagogy. Actually, I know he means a little bit something different than that, but I'm using it in that way because, again, you're talking in white spaces. And when you're talking in white spaces, the best you can do is create a little space to operate and perhaps help some people and be a little subversive, to quote Bell Hooks and so many others who have operated in these white spaces. Go with God. It's a beautiful thing. I'm not critiquing that at all. Now, the panel that came after the young brothers, the young brothers who are teachers, was one that I really, really, another one, uh, all of them have been like this, I really enjoyed uh, Kwame Simmons, who's out of Detroit, um, um, Roberto Rodriguez, who is a, uh, a, a deputy superintendent, I'm sorry, deputy superintendent, deputy secretary of education, Department of Education. Very interesting. Uh, William Hayes, who is the um, leader of Philadelphia Boys Latin. Now, you'll know we make some progress when we have Philadelphia Boys or Philadelphia Girls, Metonature, 
But uh, you know we love those Romans, don't we? Don't we love those Romans? Anyway, folks. But um, <clears throat> but the two brothers who really I was very happy to see my old friend Salome Thomas L, who has been a principal for years. Salome Thomas L, who has been they tried to they've been trying to lure Salome for years, for years trying to lure him out of public schools. He wrote a book uh, a number of years ago. It came out. Times worked for school just about 20 years ago called I Choose to Stay. Uh, he's probably best known nationally and internationally for starting chess clubs uh, at his schools and then engaging in these broader networks. And one of the things Salone did, he's talked, he talked yesterday, he's told this story a billion times about how, you know, the chess club, first chess club he started, one of the first chess clubs he started, the young brother was in trouble and he's about to get suspended. He said, I could suspend you. He said, I can't be suspended. Uh, uh, Mr. Thomas Hill, I can't be suspended, Principal Thomas Hill, because my mama, my mama will kill me. Okay, well, it's either suspension or you join the press, uh, or you join the chess club. I'm gonna join the, the chess club, and then he, he started training award-winning chess players. But Salome so, so said yesterday, he said, when you see now, he said, I now have students who have children. <clears throat> And Salome said, when these children come, the grandchildren come, I'm still here. I choose to stay. Somebody got to stay. In fact, we need to stay. We need to stay. If we stay, that's institution building. And Salome has done all the circuits, CNN, you name it. He's been all over, you know, get more in America. But I'm still here. I'm not coming over there. I'll come do a residency. I'll stay with y'all for a month in summertime. I'll go back. But I'm not leaving where I am. Very important. And then the other brother who made up the quartet of people who were commenting uh, was a brother who I had never met personally, but, you know, we got a chance to meet each other. We really embraced because I'm a big fan of his work. And he said something I'm going to talk about in a second. And that's Baruti Caffelli. Um, just a beautiful brother. Uh, he's retired like so long. He killed me with this retired principal because it just freed him up from the building. And now he does work with teachers all over the country. Baruti New Yorker he talked about, you know, his influences being including his brother who was principal of the Boys and Girls High School in Brooklyn. Just a just a beautiful spirit and and brilliant brother. And he said something very powerful, a lot of stuff very powerful. One of the things Baruti said, in fact, because the other thing is, you know, I'm an inveterate note taker. So let me let me see what Baruti said. In fact, I might just read this little page here in a minute. But one thing, in fact, yeah, I'm just gonna if y'all don't mind, I rarely do this because you know. Uh, people often say, well, you know, that car, you're academic. Where are your books? And I said, well, I wrote enough to get tenured and I continue to write, but most of my writing is on legal pads. <laughs> I got uh, probably 10 books of pads. And at some point, you know, I'll continue to, 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 to write and I'll put some of this stuff out. One of the things I am determined to do, however, is do it in black spaces. In fact, I was having that conversation yesterday with one of the other folks who presented another sister who I, you know, having been able to spend a lot of time with, but have a lot of respect for a young sister who's written a brilliant, written a brilliant book on the Philadelphia public schools, uh, Kamika Royal, Dr. Royal. And standing there talking with her, you know, it's like, I really enjoyed your book. And it's very important, you know, she's Philadelphian. When she was coming of age, Connie Clayton was the superintendent of schools, first black woman to be superintendent of schools in the city of Philadelphia. And she tells a story between the late 60s and uh, 20 teens, late 20 teens, really almost up to 2020 in some ways about black education in the city of Philadelphia. And I said, you know, excellent book. I said, 
imagine one day when that book could be published by Cheney University Press, because Cheney was the school in the Philadelphia area that trained the black school teachers. Kathy Adams' parents, who, you know, we saw Kathy at office hours, she, as we talked about uh, during office hours, uh, two weeks ago, she and Andre Key at Claflin have put the conceptual categories, our Africana Studies framework, which she was very much an anchor part in helping develop, uh, now is the anchor of the curriculum for the Africana Studies formation at Claflin University, which is major, major in terms of that outer spoke of the grounding foundation of our community work together. Uh, Kathy's parents, mother and father, came out of Cheney's Teachers College. They, they, they trained the black school teachers in Philadelphia and beyond. So I was saying to Kamika, I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could have published that book with a Cheney University Press? She looked at me as only a black woman can look, said, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice? Because see, a lot of these books that our scholars who are in these spaces, these white spaces are writing, are published at white university presses because just like the T14 in the law schools or the people trying to get into T14 who won't give up LSAT scores, who won't give up grade point averages, that is the structure, the reward system for them. So in some ways, they are, um, they find themselves in a, in a social structure that lures them to many of them, not Kamika, but I mean, people who are our colleagues and think can lure them into a surrender, a surrender of isolation. The special Negro in the white space, in other words, I call them the, the that's, that's what I call the, uh, the, the pet shop type of black scholars. Look at this remarkable pool. Bark for us. It's very nice. <laughs> Oh, that's nice too. You, that collar's tight, right? That collar's tight. That's the ones writing about black power publishing. As long as the collar's tight, you ain't got to worry about that. But wouldn't it be nice when if the black institutions had that ability? Because then at that point, it's RS, uh, RESPCT. Find out what it means to me. But in having that conversation, Baruti, Principal Caffelli, was talking about what it really means to intervene. And here's where I want to turn to what we can do. The stewards of the world should be doing what they're doing. And as you're doing it, you should, if you're really about that life, put on more people who are going to tell you the unwarranted truth to your face, which is, as Tony Morrison told Charlie Rose, that's your problem. That gives you a glimpse. A glimpse, mind you. A glimpse. Because we're not in the business of saving you. Black women, black men did not save democracy in the election. That's not our job. Our job is self-defense. You said it yourself, John. Self-defense. We're defending ourselves. Harm reduction. That's why we're intervening at any particular given moment in the history. That's hard to put in a history book. But anyway, let me just read you. These are just notes I was taking as I'm listening to these brothers. Um, I wrote down, convening of educators. This is what we're here for. We, this is a convening of educators who see teaching as a revolutionary act. I saw some of my former students who are now grown with children of their own who are grown. Uh, some of the first people I, I taught in Philadelphia who I was in community with in Philadelphia, the first class I taught at Temple when I was a teaching assistant, but it's only assistant in name, that's in pay. There was nobody in there but me. In other words, this your class, no problem. Uh, Norman Bayard, Bob and Norman Bayard, who was just a brilliant educator, he and his wife Shane, I remember when they met, they were both students at Temple. They now have, uh, uh, now is their oldest, college graduate. He's in the sciences. I mean, both feet 
10 toes down, as the young people say in the sciences. Brilliant young scientists. African-centered every last one of them. Uh, Nani, their daughter, is a brilliant dancer. Norm was telling me that she's going to be dancing in the Nutcracker. I said, brother, they can't see her. You don't know me, but I'm your sister. I was raised here in this living hell. <laughs> oh, man. Y'all don't even know who y'all watching dance. Nandi. Yeah, Nandi. That's Shaka's mother. Shaka Boobie. Y'all don't know about that. And then the baby is like, I think, what did he, what did he say? 16? The baby, man. That's only like two years younger than y'all. You were when we all. John King. He, uh, his sister Dana was the director of social studies for the school district when we put the curriculum together. She was really the architect in the school district side. John is a professor of himself. John and Dana King, uh, their father, John Griffin, was one of the brothers who, they went into witness protection, the FBI. Some of y'all know about the Hanafi Muslims, the, the, the slaughter that took place in Washington, D.C., in that house that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar broke, uh, bought, uh, say less. I'm going to say less about that. But at any rate, John and Dana King, just brilliant educators. I saw John yesterday. They were all here. But I'm saying this was a convening of educators who see teaching as a revolutionary act. The rhetoric sounds great to say that, right? But there, yesterday we saw lots of effective teachers, administrators, programmatic workers, but the fundamental disconnects persist. Here we go. We are conceptually bound. We're still bound conceptually. And you know what broke that open for me? Baruti yesterday. And now mind you, this isn't what people were doing yesterday, were doing Thursday night, are doing right now while we're here. They are doing the work of revolutionary work. Again, Ishmael Jimenez, uh, Mike Africa Jr. was there. You know, of course, Mike Africa Jr., uh, whose father and whose family, of course, talking about the Move 9, where in this city they were bombed and killed, and many of them, Freedom Move 9, by the way, are in jail. Shout out to Pam Africa, Ramona Africa, all the people here. Uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who still struggles. Uh, Baba Matulu Shakur, who has been given compassionate release because he had and has, like a lot of our political prisoners, the death sentence. And here's how they do the death penalty for people they don't want to put in the chair or put the needle in their arm. They arrest you, they convict you, and they lock you up until five minutes before you draw your last breath. Then they let you out so that they can absolve themselves. But you know what? You don't know my kind in your world. Very soon, the time will tell you telling me the things you're going to do for me. I ain't blind, <laughs> but I don't like what I think I see. Taking it to the streets. Y'all going to keep with this compassionate release shit. But at any rate, Mike Africa presented yesterday. A lot of, I mean, just brilliant workshops all up and down. You know, I got to see my sister Shana Terrell, who we do the podcast, the Building the Black Educator Pipeline, every uh, the last Thursday of the month, every year, every, every, uh, every month. Um, my man Charles Cole from the West Coast, shout out to the Bay Area. Charles Cole, brilliant brother. He got the fronts, he got the baseball cap, and a first-rate educator. He is part, he is another along with uh, um, um, with Baba El Mekki, Sharif El Mekki, and their companions. They call them the, the Eight Black Hands, an incredible podcast. They did a live version of the Eight Black Hands podcast yesterday, um, which is brilliant. But the thing that made it click for me, so in other words, the people here are doing that revolutionary work, and it's convening of revolutionaries. That is the work. But here's something, as these brothers were talking yesterday, the principles. That's something Baruti said. He said, Baruti, uh, I said, I wrote down, Baruti Caffelli made the point. He said, while we're here with these hundreds of educators, our children are in school. He said, let me tell you the real uniqueness, sadly, of this convening. 
We're here having this conversation with each other about things we all know to be true, trying to strategize how we can get more people into the teaching pipeline, including really emphasizing at this point black men, but black people generally, certainly black men, and we can have these young brothers talk and this kind of, we're, we're here with that. We, so we, we're right here. We're clear about that. He said, I go all over the country. I don't do this. He says, you know who I talk to in teacher development? You know who I talk to in professional development? You know who I talk to about being anti-racist and freeing up children and doing a be better job and not getting in the way of black children? You know who I talk to? He said, white women. Because that's who's teaching your kids. Man, everybody knows it, but to hear it put right there, as Joe Madison would say, where the ghosts can get it, you know, to hear that, it's a powerful reminder. You know, after the session, we were standing there talking, he and I, because I finally got a chance to meet him in person. I hadn't seen him. You know, we know each other on social media. We've seen him. Again, another reason why social media is important. This Nubia platform is us. We're talking to each other. Twitter, everybody talking to everybody, but you find places, black Twitter, academic Twitter, this kind of thing, it ain't going away. But whether it does or doesn't, we have a space to stand in, thanks to you, as you put on uh, Twitter the other day. You were the architect, building this, and then we all come in a space and continue to continue to grow and build and attract. This is a very deliberate space with that kind of energy, the same kind of energy that's at this conference. Now, now what Rudy said, though, was, you know, I don't do this. All the rest of the time, I'm talking to white women. Why? Because those are the people in front of our children, and those are the ones I have to intervene in our children for behalf of. And these principals talked about the fact that their staffs are not black because they don't have the black teachers. So when they see a black man come in the room as a new teacher, when they see a black woman come in the room as a new staffer, their obligation then is to connect with that person to help develop them. So in those hostile spaces, just like, for example, the producer on John Stewart's show, or Dean, at a law school who is of African descent, like uh, Roger Fairfax, Justin Fairfax, brother, who is the dean at the Washington College of Law of the American University, who when he saw Angie Porter's uh, credentials come over the wire, was like, stop the presses. We take her. Because she was trying to go to Howard. Nah, we need you over here. And see, Angie's built like that. She could teach these white students. They're going to learn a hell of a lot. And she's going to find them black students over there and everybody else. And thanks to you, a whole open up platform. And we had this conversations with the community. Why? Because she's coming out of those governance formations. So if you're in those white spaces, what Rudy was saying is your job, if you're in a school building, is to attract, is when you see that person that look like you, you need to help them and connect with them and help them negotiate through these spaces. He said, but make no mistake about it. That is the work we do because we have to. This is the work we would prefer to do all the time. And Baruti said that, and I thought to myself, damn, and I wrote this. Here's the persistent question we have to ask ourselves. Who are we working for? Are we working to save the soul of America? I tell you, America ain't got no soul. So when I hear John Stewart talking, I have no critique of John Stewart. This is your society, man. But what happens? How does one right a wrong when the wrong itself is narrated as right. That's the question. Mm. In other words, you know, like John Stewart was saying in one of the clips, he said, you know, white people, you know, act like this is the first time black people have been telling us that. He said, you know, why? Because we like to discover shit. It's kind of like our thing. Everybody's laughing. And he said, look, America. And everybody laughed. Pause. It wasn't called America. Was it Turtle Island? I know you're saying that, but what you're also doing is back mapping into history your white narrative. Again, I lived for and have deep, deep love for this city. I have no love 
for white supremacy and white nationalism. And this city there elsewhere. When I say love Philadelphia, I love Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. I love the sound of Philadelphia. I love the fact that coming back into this hotel last night, having ingested a cheesesteak that should have had me sleep until tomorrow, although it was cheesesteak. <laughs> I walked in and saw two brothers, including this brother who's Afro-Latino, whose daughter is a freshman at Howard, and we spent an hour yesterday talking about the difficulties of navigating in a space where many of her classes are online, and he and her mother are paying tuition, and then he came down here and had a meet with the provost, and she, he said, man, one of the classes that she enjoyed the most this semester was when you came and did a guest talk at Freshman Seminar, me and Jules Sorrell and, uh, and Mario Bay. I said, you know, brother, I used to teach that class. And we had a conversation about that. Child said, that was the highlight of my semester. I said, that just made me that much more angry and determined to impose my will on this funky structure that would get between somebody who came for a thing. But anyway, he and his boy were coming in and they had the sacks. And I said, I see y'all been out there looking for, he said, yeah, see, we had to get these cheesesteaks. What kind of cheesesteaks did they have? Halal cheesesteaks. Why? Because everybody in Philadelphia is either a Muslim or an honorary Muslim. That's the Philadelphia I love. These Negroes went out and found a halal cheesesteak. Why? Because you can find Because, of course, this is where Malcolm lived in North Philadelphia. Temple number 12. This Philadelphia is in the bloodstream of the nation of Islam. And many of the people who are Sunni Muslims now, they started in the nation including the gangsters. Philadelphia is the home of the Black Mafia. This is why I said, if you know that, then you know John King and Dana King's father, John Gripper, was in the nation, then came in, and the Hanafi Muslim, oh my God, let's not even talk about that, but if you're from Philly, you know that. You know that. Kenny Gamble's a Muslim, in fact. Uh, they have charter schools in Fort Dana runs uh, the, 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 the charter schools in the universal charter school network. But I'm saying all that to say, that's the Philadelphia I love. It's the governance Philadelphia, you understand. And in that governance structure, we have to understand, as Baruti said, you, know, you got to ask yourself, what is our objective? Who are we working for? What are we working for? And in fact, this is what I wrote down, listen to Baruti and listen to those brothers yesterday. Teaching is a declaration of war. Mm. Unvarnished investments in us is a declaration of war. That's a declaration of war. Because see, Yesterday, and again, I left here, walked down the street, walked down to what they call Penn's Landing, and because there are a couple of old, old, old bookstores down there. And you know, I can't come somewhere. In fact, Toya asked me, you been to the bookstore yet? Yes, they have no. I said, no, I'm here with y'all, but trust and believe. So, yes, I made it out and came back. And I found a few books. Um, this is one that I didn't have that I'm glad to come up on because I've been looking, you know, I don't say I look was looking actively because it wouldn't have been that hard to find. But I, I think about something and then I put it in my mind. And then when I'm in a bookstore, I'll go in places. Did you go to the Black Studies section? Yeah, I went there first. But now just to make sure I didn't miss nothing or nobody else coming here and get something I was looking for before. But then I go everywhere else. Uh, in the theater section in this place, this is Robert Brewstein's book, Cultural Calisthenics, Writings on Race, Politics and Theater. That's Robert Brewstein and his... Uh, Magnificent, benevolent uh, post. Um, but this is the guy that had the beef with August Wilson. When August Wilson wrote the, uh, they had a debate in New York, but August Wilson wrote the famous speech, The Ground on Which I Stand, where he said, I'm a race man. I'm standing in my race. The speech he gave at Princeton. 
And Bruce Dean was very critical. He was like, oh, I didn't like the end of the piano lesson. I thought it was contrived. Who give a damn? I don't give a damn what you think. <laughs> <laughs> so they big back because I'm writing for us and I'm writing as August Wilson says, we've talked about when we talk about we, when we talked about August Wilson. I'm speaking out of a black experience to the world and you find your humanity in my blackness. What I'm not doing is pleading for you for my humanity. Yeah, I don't know where anybody in the world that will change places with me and I'm rich. No. August Wilson is saying, I'm going to tell it the way I see it and you will find yourself in this. That's a beautiful thing because I have to have that speech between Last Saturday and this Saturday, I spent Saturday evening, a couple of hours with Felicia Rashad, the dean of the Chad Bozeman uh, School of Fine Arts at Howard, because she has uh, represented two plays from the 1920s, one by Willis Richardson, who's kind of seen as one of the founders of black theater in the 20th century. Friends with Carter G. Woodson published a couple of volumes of his poetry, uh, of his poetry, his plays, and another by Mary Burrell. Mary S. Burrell, a fascinating figure for years on the faculty of Dunbar High School, um, the companion, lover, confidant. Today, in today's world, they'd have been married to um, the great Lucy Diggs Slow from Howard University. We talked about Lucy Diggs Slow, the tennis champion, and we talked about Dorothy Porter Wesley a while back. Those of you who are not yet in narrative and Nubia, all of those things are archived there. You can see we talk in great detail. But Mary Burrell uh, taught for years at Dunbar while Lucy Diggs Slow was on the faculty and was the Dean of Women at Howard, and she wrote a play too. Fat, both very fascinating plays. I won't get into that. But in the conversation that Dean Rashad and I were having about these plays, uh, because they wanted to film a conversation that put the plays in the context of their times and in the long arc of black theater programs at Howard. And let me tell you, uh, Felicia Rashad is working her behind off at Howard University. It was a Saturday night. <laughs> you understand? We were there till like nine o'clock having conversation, uh, we did the taping probably was maybe between seven and like eight, eight there, but she wasn't, she had been there all day and was going to be there after I left. And I, of course I got dressed, I had my African clothes on and we had to pause because there was all this noise next door. We were in the, in the uh, fine arts building and it's part of a complex, Crampton Auditorium, the big auditorium campus is next door. And the only thing that separates them is a partition that you can raise and lower because they're part of the same complex. So we were setting up, they were miking us up. We heard, they would hear, do, 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 do. all this music. Say, what's going on? So I walked around and said, well, we got to pause for a minute. Let me go around and see. It was the African Students Association. And I'm embarrassed to say I did not realize they were having their pageant that night. Crampton Auditorium seats about 1,500 students. That's what we had freshman seminar. It was at least two-thirds full. So there must have been over 1,000 students there, many of them continental Africans, students at Howard, either first-generation students or born outside the United States. They had on their clothes, and it was the full range of Africana the most beautiful African dresses. The Ethiopian girls came in, they had their white, you know, how they had it, the kind of cloth. Oh, by the way, I should pause here um, and, and mention Mama Salone Garima. And we send our love to uh, to the family of Holly Garima, his family, Shrikiana Garima, all the children, all their uh, siblings and, and an extended family because Mama Salone made transition. Um, her memorial was this past Wednesday uh, in Virginia. Um, just a brilliant, uh, cultural worker, institution builder, partner with her brother and uh, family. So, you know, always sending them the love. And so, so the Ethiopian students came in with the traditional Ethiopian dress. And of course, you know, the Nigerian kids, man. These brothers, I'm like, where y'all get these Euro? That's why I was, I was not clowning them. I was just marveling. I said, see, you young cats got the body. I got to lose this gut, man, because I wouldn't wear that anyway. They're kind of Euro 
tailored with the tight paint, like, and they got the sparkly, you know, the Africans going to trick it out in the bow ties and then somebody else come in in the traditional dress. And then that's what I had on. And I just felt right at home. And I was the advisor to the African Student Association for several years when I first came to Howard. I tell I've been the advisor to damn near everything uh, at Howard when they couldn't find nobody else to do it. I was the advisor for Cascade. I saw David Johns, my friend David Johns, who was a student at Columbia who took a semester uh, at, at Howard in the exchange program and in some ways has never left D.C. He took my education in Black America class. David was here this weekend and we were laughing about it because uh, I was their advisor. That's the LBGTQIA uh, 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 organization at Howard. And so, I, I mean, I would advise and sign the paperwork and be there for whoever wanted me to be there. And so when I came in, a thing really struck me. I said, all these kind of African students, students from the African diaspora who were joining with them, students born in the United States, one young lady, Professor Hunter, we have at Howard, I stood in the back and had a conversation with her. She took freshman seminar a couple of years ago. She's a junior now, nursing major. She was born in Florida. Her people are from Haiti. She went to Marjorie Stoneham Douglas. Mm-hmm. And I stood there with her and we were talking about it because, you know, Maxwell Frost just got elected to Congress, 25 years old. He didn't go to Douglas, but he is from that area. And as we were talking, I said, do you know him? She said, no, he's a little older than me, but I do know of him. And I said, what, what do you think we should be doing as young people? You should be doing as young people and we should be doing to help you all as we intervene in this space. And it was just very powerful because I did not know until that moment. As we were talking, I was asking where she was from. She said, hey, she said, you're from Florida? Yeah, Broward County. And, so, wow. she said, and we were talking and I said, oh, yeah. so you know Maxwell Frost? Yeah, yeah, I don't know him, but he went to school, you know, near each other. I said, wait, you didn't go to Marjorie Stoneham Douglas? She said, yeah, because she said March for Our Lives. And it clicked. And she said, she did not bring that up. She did not lead with that. I'm saying, this black girl, <laughs> you understand, who, you know, this is who we are. And, of course, those you don't know, Marjorie Stoneham Douglas, of course, is where the terrorists came in and murdered all those children. And they gave the spark to the March for Our Lives movement. And, of course, the social structure media will have you see David Hall. Nothing wrong with that. Like John Stewart, nothing wrong with that. But... Here are the African people. Who are we to each other? This young lady is in a black space with a bunch of kids, a kind of Africans, herself a daughter of the children of the Caribbean, the Afro-Caribbean, in a space having a conversation with an African born in Nashville, Tennessee, whose parents came out of enslavement in this country. This is what gives the lie to this formation that we are not connected. And we're having this conversation. And anyway, I'm saying I have to say that. I went back around to Dean Rashad them. I was like, oh, that's the African students. So we might as well keep going. Why? Because they ain't going to be quiet. And them Negroes going to be in there for the rest of the night. So we went on and kept going. And in the conversation we're having, Dean Rashad said this. Felicia Rashad said this. My job, our job in theater as educators in a space like this is to preserve our voice and to pass our voice on, to pass our voice on to the next generation of our people, to our students. She said, I'm reminded of that by something James Earl Jones told me, his father told him. And I said, Robert Earl Jones. She said, that's right. She said, you know, they're from Mississippi. And she said, you know, she said it. Now, this is a child of the third ward. Remember when I moved down there in Houston, uh, talking about Jack Yates High School. That's where she went to school. That's where her sister, Debbie Allen, went to school. That's where Roland Martin went to school. Jack Yates. Jack Yates, one of the original purchases of the land that became Emancipation Park, where they started the first Juneteenth in Houston. And I mentioned that as night. I said, you know, yeah, y'all went to Jack Yates. So 
I said, you've been in Emancipation Park many times. Juneteenth ain't nothing to you. She said, have I been in Emancipation Park? My daddy's office was across the street from Emancipation Park. So we're talking about this question of governance. Who are we to each other? But I said, you know, you like, like my mother, like so many in the South, when you open your mouth, you can hear a little bit of the lilt, but there was generations of Black folk who as Southerners were trained to speak in a certain way with a diction, you know, that allows you to communicate in a way that you won't be misunderstood. All of the consonants are pronounced, you see. And this is a, are you Southern? Yeah, yeah, you Southern, but there's a certain training you have so that you would not know uh, that you are, you see, from Birmingham. Well, when you talk uh, to Angela uh, Yvonne uh, Davis, uh, and then, you know what? Now, John Stewart quoted Angela Davis, but see, you don't know me but I'm your sister. I was raised here in this living hell. <laughs> yeah, you don't know my kind in your world. Very soon the time will tell. In other words, Anthony Davis is on the FBI's most wanted list. Asada Shakur still can't come back to the United States. Barack Obama went down there and one of the first things he said to the Cubans, to Castro's brother is, where's Asada? We're going to need her back. Yeah, because I'm president of the United States. These Negroes here think I'm the president of black people. But no, and as I told James Comey when he came to work, at Howard University, and they wanted me to sit with him. I said, fellow citizens, why would you ask me to come here and talk to this man? Let me tell you something. There are children on this campus named for Asada Shakur, the one you call Joanne Chesimar, because in the social structure, she's an outlaw. Here she's a hero. How you gonna square that circle when you walk in the classroom, bro? Because see, I'm not the Negro that's gonna tell you something that you wanna hear. Because see, I have a place to stand. I stand in my community. So you can almost consider me a diplomat in some form. So when I'm talking to you, it's like going to the embassy and having diplomatic relations because I got a place. And just like you just said, Professor Hunter, we got a place to stand. When you got a place to stand, it's a different question. Coming back to it, as Rudy said it, I said, so what is our objective? What is our, you know, what, who are we working for? What are we working for? If teaching is a declaration of war and an unvarnished investment in us is a declaration of war, our foundations must be clear. We have to listen. John Stewart was saying one of the clips, you know, we have to listen. And then he made fun of it. He's saying white people say, we're listening. Bill Clinton, I'm listening. Y'all listen with both ears. See, y'all trivialize listening. I was reminded of this by one of my students, uh, Moa Salam. We were in Education in Black America class Thursday, and we were reading Du Bois together. And for a lot of these students, it's the first time that they had read Du Bois speeches. But they know the name Du Bois, but they don't get a chance to be with Du Bois. The young sister who went to Marjorie to Stone Douglas the year that she took freshman seminar, where she said it changed my life. Anytime you hear a student say a class changed their life, it just gives you a whole pause. Not just a student, but even listening and having conversations with Nubians. And they say, brother, you know what y'all are doing? What? I said, no, what we're doing. What we're doing, this is changing my life. So it's changing my life too. So uh, it was the same book that we had used that year in the freshman seminar, The Education of Black People. And when Amoa said, when uh, Thursday morning, it's past Thursday, he says that the current tradition I was raised in, he was raised in the, Af in the African Center tradition, the African Center Independent School. He said, you know, there's a, there's a saying that the fool speaks, the wise person listens. He says, so even whenever any of us is speaking, it's not reluctantly, but it's almost like you're talking. You should be listening. So even when John Stewart said, white people say they listen, you're not listening. No, uh-uh. You telling me the things you're going to do for me, I ain't blind. And I don't like what I think I see. I'm paying attention. Black people are always paying attention. These educators are saying our 
job is an act of really, I'm using my language now, pulling us into a governance formation, not just self-defense, but institution building, connecting. And that type of unvarnished investment in us displaces something. They can't coexist. They cannot coexist. Here's the thing. Individual achievement is not the objective. So brilliant people doing what amounts to academic autopsies on black institutions and publishing the books, it's not impressive. Any of us could spend six months subsidized by somebody or a year or two years or 10 years subsidized by some institution to sit up and go through records and write a brilliant commentary. What are you doing in the living tradition? How does this connect to our institutions? How, in other words, do it free us to evoke Sonia Sanchez, whose house is not too far from where I'm sitting right now? How do it free us? I don't know why this light keep going on and off. There's somebody mad, but I guess that's only the strength of John Stewart's ancestors, which can't really do too much about this. So you can keep clicking if you want. When in a break, the chief operating officer of the Center for Black Educated Development, a beautiful sister, uh, Nicole Duckett, another Detroiter, we were talking yesterday. Nicole read a poem from Lucille Clifton, the poet Lucille Clifton, the great uh, African poet Lucille Clifton coming out of Maryland, Baltimore. And one of the lines reads, only African artists studying forever can capture them. Who is she talking about? Black children, black people. Only African artists studying forever can capture them. What does that mean in the context of what we're talking about now? Well, if in fact, an unvarnished investment in us is a declaration of war, what that means is you can't understand us until you displace yourself as the center. So you gotta listen to you say you listen to us? We'll see if you're listening. We'll see. Cause you're always telling me the things you're gonna do for me. I ain't blind and I don't like what I think I see. In other words, I'm not coming over there to you to plead for my humanity. I'm gonna build something for myself. And that's what scares the hell out of people. Let me kind of wind this to a close. One of the things I was, I went down the street looking for this cheese thing. Really I went down there to go to the bookstore. And I had the good sense not to eat a cheesesteak before I went now. Chicken cheese, I can't eat the beef. If I had eaten the beef cheesesteak, we would have missed. We, we wouldn't have had the 141st because I'd be over there asleep. <laughs> but at any rate, the point is that <laughs> this man has gone into a catatonic shop with all that cheese whiz and fried onions on top of beef. Oh, no. No, sir. But um, when I walked down to the bookstore and I came back up the street, before, between the cheese, one of the many cheesesteak places, and please forgive me, it's not a venal sin or a moral sin. It's a little bit of a sin. I didn't go to West Philly. I didn't go to North Philly. I didn't go to any of the places. I didn't go up Broad Street to, you know, that scene where you see Tessa Thompson in there with Michael B. Jordan in Creed. That is a real cheesesteak place up Broad Street. Anyway, but the point is, I didn't, I didn't leave too far where I am. I walked. And so between uh, the hotel and the first cheesesteak place I stopped at, on the way back is Independence Mall. So there's Independence Hall, the Liberty Bell, all that stuff, across the street, Market Street, and there is the Constitution Center. You come up the block, that's where Sam Alito wrecked shop on the lives of human beings before they promoted him in devilment to the Supreme Court. He was here at the Circuit Court of Appeal. But the Pennsylvania State House is where Thomas Jefferson and them were. And there is a Liberty Bell. They built a building for the Liberty Bell. I remember when they built it. 
And in front of it is the uh, the archaeological remains of what was known then as the president's house. Because, of course, Philadelphia is the first capital of the United States before they drug D.C. into a, a perfect diamond out of a, a swamp in Virginia and Maryland. And then, of course, uh, part of it retroceded into Virginia as the Virginians one day. That's why it's a fractured diamond now. Shout out to Ben Banneker and you know his companions. But at any rate, the, uh, the footprint is there. Just before you get to the Liberty Bell Pavilion, it's called the President's House. And I was living in Philadelphia and am honored to have been one among so many who fought, protested, waved the red, black, and green uh, flag, went down there and disrupted the 4th of July celebration they always have down there where the Black Choir comes. Many years it was the Black Mayor, and we was down there protesting. Why? Because they were going to build a monument around the fragments of the president's house, the first place where George Washington and them stayed, because they said, you're not going to put a brick in place here. You're not going to build nothing here. That's when the Liberty Bell was still uh, in Independence Hall. They hadn't built a pavilion. You ain't building nothing on this corner of Market Street and not centering the story of the Africans that were enslaved. There was an organization started then that continues to this day. My friend and brother, uh, uh, Michael Cord, an attorney, Cheney University trained, uh, hip-hop scholar as well. Teach has taught for many years in the Pan-African uh, education program at Temple. Mike and his comrades started something called ATTACK, Avenging the Ancestors Coalition, coalition of all our organizations. Our freedom school kids went down there and protested, avenging the ancestors. So you, you, know, you ain't building nothing on this corner. And that, by the way, I shout out all the Africans who have waged that war around the world. Because that has been the, the, the fight to carry the momentum of memory and create memorials is a global fight. As you read those countries, I can think of just about every country you named, Professor Hunter, whether it be the UK, whether it be certainly throughout Europe, whether it be France, whether it be Brazil, where we know we are represented here in this convening in Nubia, whether it be Southern Africa, West Africa, even countries controlled by Africans, the fight over memory. How do you memorialize this? How do you deal with what happened here? Not all related to trauma. Very important. If I was at home, I would pull this book. I just got on a walking tour of Great Britain. Uh, maybe I'll pull it Monday night and we can show each other. But anyway, the point is that the president's house, when, when they built the memorial, you see when you walk in. And since I was here last time, they have put digital screens in. The stories of the Africans. On one wall, the name of every African that escaped from George and Martha Washington. You see the name of Ona Judge. You see Hercules, the chef. All their names are right there. And then they've got these beautiful, beautifully constructed narratives. So there, there are flat screen televisions. You walk in, you see the pavilion, you see the brick walls, and they got everything. And then the, 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 the flat screen comes to life. I'm like, how the hell did y'all do this? And the child starts talking. Three little boys. Hercules, the chef, is in here. These little boys acting up. Three little black boys. He said, y'all come here. You take these carrots and peel. Okay, you take this. You take these potatoes and peel. Now, and his son, Hercules calls his son over and says, he gives him something. He says something to him. Then they walk out. The two little black boys, these probably boys about nine, ten years old. They talk to each other, right? One says to the other. I'm standing here watching this video. These actors. These little boys, one says to the other, says, you know, they're saying to Hercules and his son going to escape. The other little boy says, yeah, I heard that. He said, you know, people be talking about escaping all the time, but you think they're going to do it? The other little boy says, you know, yeah, 
I think it's hard though, because he got you know they have you know it's not just the two of them. He got a wife, got other children. So one little boy says to the boy he says, "Everybody said they got a plan. You got a plan?" The other boy pauses. He looks the way Kamika looked at me yesterday. <laughs> what you think? <laughs> I said, "Man, this is beautiful. Look, you don't know us. We don't give a damn about your country." This is why I told them uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones unveiled her Center for Journalism and Democracy at Howard on Tuesday. It was a beautiful convening, and I'm grateful to Nicole for inviting me to be there because Nicole knows me well enough, and I know her know enough to know that I'm not the Negro that's here to talk to white people in a certain way. And so I was actually there with uh, Professor Anthea Butler, who's here at University of Pennsylvania in, Howard, uh, in, in Philly. Lord have mercy and come to a close and everything's converging in my head. And um, very interesting, Kianga Yamada Taylor, who's up the road at Princeton, brilliant scholar, beautiful sister, does some very important work. I would encourage you all to get her work and Anthea Butler's work. Anthea works in the, in the area of religion mm-hmm. and racism and religion, white evangelical. You must, have you talked, maybe you've talked to her. She has been a frequent guest on my show. Yes, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, it was, it was her. Me. She featured in the God Forbid uh, documentary on Hulu, which is yes. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, see, this is the thing, right? Because that's not my work. And that's what I said that day. One of the young people from, I think it was Texas Southern, there were HBCU journalists and students from North Carolina A&T. I talked to them a long time. Texas Southern, uh, the Atlanta University Center, so Morehouse Spelman, Clark Atlanta University, um, North Carolina Central, the Eagles were there. And I love spending time with those young people. And you know, there were a lot of other people there, a lot of white journalists. Most of the people, in fact, who spoke, uh, Jason Stanley and... Uh, Ruth Beth Yacht, uh, Stan Levitsky, a lot of white folks went in. Well, Sharon Eiffel was there, though. Gave a very interesting conversation. And then we had our panel. And uh, got a chance to, hadn't seen him since before COVID. Jake Silverstein, editor of New York Times Magazine, was there. We sat over the corner and chopped it up for a minute. I was very happy to see those black students. And one of the things I said, one of them got a, a sister, young lady from Spelman, said, you know, you said that, she quoted something I said, and she said, well, you know, what should we be doing? I said, uh, well... Because they were talking about, because a lot of this is oriented around, you know, we got to diversify the newsrooms, got to tell the truth. All that's very important work. But that particular question, one of the questions, maybe it was the young brother from North Carolina Central. I said, I can't really answer that question because I've chosen to spend my life in black formations. So I really don't have a good, maybe one of y'all can. Because, you know, he's a folk fighting. But here's the thing. I'm not going to spend my life in the white institutions. But in order for me to be able to do that, we have to support each other. And in order to support each other, we have to believe that we have to be clear about what we are doing. What is our objective? So anyway, I, I just said all that to go far afield and bring this in for a landing. In the conversation, people don't know us. And what I said that day at the Center for Journalism and Democracy, and again, it was, it was, a, it was an excellent gathering. And at the same time, it was a powerful reminder that if we're not clear about what we're doing, and one of the things I talked about was the black press. I said, there's nothing we're talking about today. The black press have been talking about for over a century, for over almost two centuries, beginning with Freedom's Journal in terms of the white-facing public. When uh, they said in 1827, John Rustworm, Samuel Cornish said, no longer do we want other people speaking for us. We will speak for ourselves. We wish to plead our own case. I said, from there, I said, everything we're talking, you know what it made me think about, Prof? which I didn't mention because it was short and I ain't, this ain't my thing. And I'm just glad to be in the conversation to be able to, you know, help these young people and be in conversation and let y'all know that some of us are not really spending a whole lot of time in dialogue. Can we talk as Tevin Campbell will say, yeah, for a minute, <laughs> that's all. Cause then I'm going back to work. But the point is 
that it remind me of that conversation we had about the brother in Cleveland with the Colin Post, the scientist who was telling y'all about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Y'all don't want to listen. And when you do want to listen, you want to filter through yourself and you want to keep your paper in place. You want to keep your platform in place. Hell, Nubia can have a billion people in it. Because here I am on Twitter and all these people lamenting, oh, what's going to happen? And then somebody says, would people come if I develop a website, if I develop a platform? Where are we going to go? Well, you know what? As you said, we're going to say less. Already built. Built several places, in fact. But with y'all, you can't control it. So that becomes a declaration of war. When you become aware of it, you're not going to advertise that. Why? Because that's something you don't control. And God forbid when you Negroes mess around and not only build something, but then have the technology and the connection so that there's nothing we can do. I'm convinced that's one of the reasons in the new Black Panther movie, for example, like in the old Black Panther movies that continue, Nigeria is hard to center. Why? Them Negroes is ungovernable. Hmm. So You know what I'm saying? So you can have Kassa. That's good. Southern Africa. You can talk about having a Wakanda embassy in Mali. Yeah, that's good. You can even bring in Haiti. Yeah, because it's got the spirit of resistance and this kind of thing. But why now Yoruba? Why now Igbo? Why not? Because the Nigerians is unruly. And Marvel's in bed with the Nigerians now. But when you get in bed with Nollywood, they ain't coming in as an employee. We either going to share this or we'll just keep making our movies. You know, we can make a movie in five minutes. Wait a minute. Hold on. Just made another 50 movies. What? Oh, what? What the hell just happened? So Marvel is in partnership. First time in the history of Marvel, they went into partnership with a Nigerian company to do this kind of digital thing they want to do, this Afrofuturism cartoon. You know, you raised them. You call them no much more about it, obviously, than I ever will. And that conversation we had in uh, Nubia Monday night, where Carl was walking us through the politics, it's very important. We're talking about Black Panther without knowing the back page. The idea that Marvel gets the comic book industry, as Carl walked us through, because they didn't have that demographic. What is the demographic? Well, it's the same demographic when I was a 13-year-old. It's boys. Boys read comic books. And they didn't have that market. So they get into the comic books in part because of the market for boys. And then the thing opens up and look where we are now. Anyway, they can't really get the Nigerians melted down in it. So one of the things I said to the Center for Journalism and Democracy is, you know, with the black press, which is a global press, the independence movement in the Caribbean, the independence movement in Africa, the independence movement in Latin America, many of it, much of it driven by people who were in trade unions, who were also journalists. And Krumah, the Ghana Daily News, the trade union papers that came out with Secretary Ray in Guinea and places like that. Journalists, 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 Haiti, journalists, radio journalists, writing journalists, people reading newspapers. That's not us pleading for our humanity with you. That's us informing ourselves and then critiquing you when you need to be critiqued. All of that having been said and brought to bear to this final point. Standing there at the president's house in the chill, on my way to get books and a chicken cheese steak, but I got to stop here because I was here when we fought this fight. I was here when they built their Constitution Center. I was here when they unveiled the Constitution Center and had four or five living Supreme Court justices. And when you yanked the chain to bring the, uh, the curtain down on the Constitution Center, the wood frame started rocking and you damn near killed half the Supreme Court. I was standing right here watching. Those. I remember when all this stuff wasn't here except that building over there where you say you wrote a Declaration of Independence that is not really the one we're using today. I'm reading a very interesting book by uh, Kermit Roosevelt that I had in my bag called The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing American Story. America's story, Kermit Roosevelt III. Roosevelt is professor of law at University of Pennsylvania. I saw a talk he gave, a class he was teaching actually, it was on C-SPAN about a week ago. And of course, then I said, let me go get this book. 
because one of the last places I went before COVID was that same room he was in for the Black Law Students Association, Sadie Tanner Alexander's pictures right outside the door. For the, for the balsa, I came up there after I left Selma, the bridge crossing, I came over to give a talk. And so I didn't know Kermit Washington, Roosevelt. And I'm like, damn. So I said, Kermit Washington, you, you, yeah, those of you, I know you know Professor under that edition. But uh, Kermit Roosevelt says, you know, that 1787 Constitution, the one that was written right there in that corner, that's the Constitution founding fathers. This is when they love to quote individual liberties, all this kind of thing. He said, but the United States of America today, it's really not based on that constitution. It's based on what he calls the Reconstruction Constitution. He doesn't say anything new. You know, Laurent Bennett, I mean, some of the others, Derek Bell, that Reconstruction Constitution, which he reminds us, is anchored in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The 13th Amendment, of course, is adopted because the Southern rebel states have been subjugated. But the 14th and 15th Amendments are passed by what Kermit uh, Roosevelt calls new states. Same geographical borders, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, but white rebels are not allowed to vote on the 14th and 15th Amendments. Those amendments were passed in Reconstruction legislatures when the Southern states were divided into five military districts. They are basically occupied territories, and those states, those state legislatures were filled with Black people. That's who passed the 14th Amendment. That's who passed the 15th Amendment. And those are the amendments that arguably define the United States of America we live in. You understand? Very soon, the time will tell. You don't know my kind in your world, Johnny Reb. So I'm going to pass an amendment that establishes citizenship, that establishes equal protection and due process under law. Why? Because your people in 1787 did not do that. Yeah, there's a Fifth Amendment, but it doesn't apply to me. So what Roosevelt says is we are engaged in this country in a battle between the 1787 Constitution, that's the one they love quoting, and that Reconstruction Constitution that Ketanji Brown Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan keep quoting as they attack these white nationalists who are determined to drag us back to the 18th century. So the question, how does one right a wrong when the wrong itself is narrated as right? In this city, they still talk about the founding fathers. And you got some Negroes that were like, I was there when General Washington was in Valley Forge. Shut up, fool. You shouldn't be talking about the 18th century. You need to be talking about 1865. And you should anchor yourself in an education system that anchors you and what your interests were. Well, let me just start with a question. What is your objective? Is your objective to get in this criminal enterprise? Because I'm going to tell you right now, there are three things that are problematic. One is the notion of the nation state. Because that's what divides us up. So while we have overflowed those boundaries in Nubia, we overflow those boundaries in YouTube. We use the digital platforms to overflow the boundaries and we connect these each other on our human relationships. The idea that these artificial boundaries divide people and then rank them in their humanity is a fundamental problem, leading to the second of the three, which is the question of settler colonialism. Whether it be occupied territory in old Palestine or occupied territory among the indigenous peoples of this hemisphere. Once you set foot on a place and claim that's yours, that leads then to the third of the three. So it's the nation state, you done drawn an artificial line based on number two, set the colonialism. And then to preserve it, you start talking about the C word. And this is so hard because this is the narrative that frames all our conversations. I heard it on Tuesday all day in the center, the debut of the Center for Justice and Democracy. I heard it in conversations even yesterday, citizenship. We have never been given full citizenship. We are fighting for full citizenship. Pause.
What is citizenship? Citizenship is truncated humanity. It's defining your humanity by which lines you live in. Well, what about those people there? Well, they're Mexicans. So we got to deal with immigration reform. They're humans. When they tweet, it goes across the line. When they inubiate, it goes across the line. When they come here, you want to check all the IDs. Why? What you scared of? What you scared of? Your money crosses the lines, corporation. Elon Musk is not from San Francisco. He from South Africa, and he inherited all that stuff, playing with gems as a child. Now it's got that. You people don't. You the only time you want to enforce boundaries is when you want to keep people separate so that you can keep doing what you're doing across boundaries. What happens? How do you right a wrong when the wrong itself is narrated as right? That is a question John Stewart has to answer, and that is a question that we all have to answer. But in order to answer it, we've got to first ask ourselves. What is our objective? I'm in a room with people now, hundreds of educators of African descent who have an objective to preserve and extend our people. And in doing that, have something to say to the world. If you are about that life, then we move forward. But understand there are many people in this world for whom that declaration and that investment and that unvarnished connection is a declaration of war, is a declaration of war. Mm. Ah, I love it. Oh, hold on, my, my, uh, let me bring it in. So I declare war. It's a game we play. I declare, ooh, they don't know about that. Huh? Remember that? Remember that? I yes, declare ma'am. war. That's got to be our rallying cry. Yeah. I declare war. I don't, I don't think we can have, uh, you're either fighting or you are being, uh, fought. Yeah. There's no, there's no sitting on the sidelines. I always imagine the, the war in heaven. Going down like, all right. So a third of the angels are like, I ain't really with this Lucifer guy, even though he does play some good music. <laughs> I'm gonna sit on the sidelines and wait to see how it turns out because he declared oh. war against God. I'm just gonna wait and see. They didn't participate, but they asked sure got cast out right along with Lucifer after it uh went down. And oh, you- Professor Hunter, you 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 got that way of knowing down, Pat. What is that? What is that biblical uh, verse which talks about being spewed out of your mouth? Oh, because you're neither hot nor cold? Thank oh. you. That's what I thought. I couldn't, yeah. Yes. So yes. in other words, there's no place to hide. No place. <laughs> you can think, uh, no matter what it is, you know, I'm just here, I'm just here, um, you know, digesting this. I'm just sitting on the sidelines, you know, just absorbing this. I'm just being in a space where war is being declared. You, you either fighting or you're being fought. Right. So... Or, or in the middle, getting shot by both sides. Or waiting to be, you know, cast out. With waiting to be cast out. So I, I'm know what? every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I'm getting down to see your sister and give give her the greetings from you. Yes. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Carr. Always, every single day. Like, I'm, it's, it's fine tuning because we're at war. So what does battle look like? What does it look like? We got to, you know, y'all. some of y'all still need to go to basic training, you know. Some of <laughs> Us got the general's board and moving pieces around wherever you are. Like, get ready. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. And like I say, I mean, and again, Kianga was saying this. I said this on Tuesday, the debut at Center. I said this. Yeah. I said, this isn't to disparage or any way critique anybody working in white spaces because that's very difficult work. As I said, you know, to uh, both Kamika, but then Tuesday when I said it to uh, Professor Butler, 
you know, she works in West Philly. I lived in West Philly. I know what them streets look like. Penn not safe anywhere else. And our people are all over. But something Kianga said, she was at Howard last month for the Black Writers Conference, and she said, you know, all of these universities are contested zones. We have to fight everywhere. So whether it be Hunter College or Howard University, we are doing the work we have to do. And now we have another place, and this place being unique because we can learn from all those other places. We have a place where we don't carry the burdens of Hunter or Howard. We're in the community. And then that just enhances our ability to be everywhere, whether it be uh, Kamika Royal, whether it be um, Althea Butler at Penn, or whether it be uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor at, uh, at at Princeton. Imani Perry just won a National Book Award. Yes, she did. Yes, and she I was did. very happy to see her. For South to America, it's a, good, it's a great book. And she said, you know, at the time, she said, I read her remarks. When she said, you know, I write for our people. She says, I write for the lash scarred. I write, and I thought to myself, you can imagine what I thought to myself. I know. I, 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 was, gonna <laughs> I was gonna say say less. I was gonna say say less. But you yeah. already know, and I'm saying okay. Internal. So yeah, it's important. It's important to write for our people. It's more important to listen to our people and to be with our people. And while you fight that fight in those social structure spaces, you go with God. Meanwhile, we're here. Oh man, I should mention Rand Miller. He presented. He's a Nubian. Rand puts stuff in here all the time. Rand has taken the conceptual categories and he's using them to. Uh, teach his AP American history course. I talked to Rand a long time yesterday. Rand is here, and that work, which he has shared in Nubia, all the stuff, and by the way, Monday night, y'all, we're going into governance, so we're reading that Walter Rodney piece. That's what we're doing Monday night in office hours. Well, the class and then office hours. But Rand, this is what we do. You can't do that starting out there. You do it here, so thank you again, the right. architect, as you shared on this Twitter. Really, thank you, because with this, we answered Baruti's question from yesterday. This is what we do. Thank and then we go in those other spaces. So thank you. You the know, architect. I love you. We all do. Love you too. At the architect, that's my paid account. I pay every month, you know, to be here. Cause you know, I will not <laughs> ask anyone something that I'm not myself doing. So the architect is my paid account. But Dr. Carr, I appreciate you so much. I love you. you. Love you. Uh, be safe and give everybody a warm hug at the conference. Cause uh, I sure will. The work being done there. Y'all know. Love all you. Right. See love you too. All right. And I'll see you Nubians in the Nubian streets with Dr. Senyata tomorrow and then Monday office hours with our Africana class that Dr. Carr uh, is heading up. And then Tuesday, Meta Nature and Wednesday, yoga with Lindsay and on and on uh, until we're back here with episode 142 next Saturday. Oh, and happy uh, Friendsgiving because, you know, there's a holiday.